it's like a trade school, right? It's like she doesn't go to college, she goes to trade school, and the trade is mutant terrorism. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast, where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of homo superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Cass Morris, a fantasy author who I have been just lucky enough to represent. She's laughing because I did a horrible voice. I'm stifling laughter. <laughs> Cass Morris, a celebrated historical fantasy author whose new book, Give Way Tonight, the second book in the Avon Cycle is out today, as you're listening to this, on December 29th. It is an ancient Roman historical fantasy. I think it's incredible. I am, of course, biased because I am her literary agent, but I would absolutely suggest that you pick it up. The first book, From Unseen Fire, is also great, and you might want to read that one first, but please buy both of them because first week sales really matter for authors and, by extension, for their agents. Cass is here with me today to talk about her favorite comic book character, the high-flying, power-stealing, hard-drinking rogue. Absolutely, Sugar. How are you today, Cass? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Connor. I'm so excited. So, so excited to be doing this episode. Well, you are a Southern Belle yourself. It's true. Thought of you immediately. Actually, I think that that was one of the first conversations that I had with anyone when I was starting this podcast was... Well, Cass will come on to do Rogue. But we waited. People have been like, where's the Rogue episode? <laughs> Especially after she guest starred in the Bobby episode to such acclaim without mm. my realizing that would happen. And uh, the answer was, we were waiting for your book to come out. And then COVID delayed your book. Yes. So there was supposed to be a Rogue episode a month ago. But you know what? It's all for the best. Because I think now we're, we're like post-election, the year's winding down. I'm feeling more relaxed. I'm also better at hosting this podcast now than I was when you would have been on it because it's an acquired skill. What I would love to start with, as I usually do, is since you may be a newer figure to the listeners, you are an accomplished writer, but not in the comic space. Although we should change that if anyone's listening. True, true. Talk to Connor. Talk to Connor. Talk to me. She's great. But I would love for you to sort of tell the listenership about your relationship to the X-Men, your origin story with these characters, and why Rogue has always been your favorite. Absolutely. So yeah, Rogue is the character I have probably latched onto in life the most, more than any other fictional character out there, not just in the X-Men, but across all of fiction. Um, and I've come back to her a lot at different points in my life and, and for different reasons that sort of play to different aspects of her character. And, and we'll talk about that. I'm very excited because I think I'm the first of your guests who has this particular in to the X-Men, which was the Pizza Hut tie-in <sighs> comics in 1993. I remember those. Though. I remember I those. Em. I had them because Pizza Hut was delicious well, and they had the X-Men, which I enjoyed quite a lot. So. Absolutely. But as a first thing, I love that. Tell me more. That what? Well, because, okay, I am a big reader, obviously. And it meant that I did the Book It program 
with Pizza Hut. <laughs> and so we'd go and get my personal fan pizza. And they did those, the, I forget exactly what the promo was, but they had like four mini issues or something that they were giving out. This was back when, for your younger listeners, um, Pizza Hut used to be a place you could go. Yes. And sit in a restaurant. <laughs> uh, for the UK listeners, Pizza Hut is still like that in the UK, but in America, oh. it's not. Uh, yeah. I went to a Pizza Hut in London. It was very chic, actually. What? I was a little startled. Yeah. We'll go someday when uh, all of this is over, <laughs> Brexit permitting. Absolutely. Uh, if you're listening to this from the UK, good luck with that. It's been, what, three days? I'm, I'm a little worried for you guys, but I'm sure you'll sort it out. Problems on both sides of the pond right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, everybody's, everybody's kind of in the shit at the moment. So that's where I started. And then it was, it was soon after that I sort of realized, like, oh, wait, there's more of this. I didn't actually start reading the comic books immediately, though. I watched the TV series, which has been an in for a lot of people, you know, of the millennial generation. I didn't really start reading the comic books until a few years later when I was I was in high school by that time, um, in 1999-2000-ish, when I binged them all during a series of sleepovers with my best friend at the time, um, who I should shout out because she works for Marvel now. Ellie Pyle is their current director of creative development for new media. I think I got her title right. Hi, Ellie. Hi, Ellie. Um, but she also, she loved Rogue, and she knew I would love Rogue, and I had loved Rogue from the TV series, but then she gave me, like, all these comic books to read, and then it was just done. I was completely infatuated with the character and have been absolutely ever since. I was thinking back to those Pizza Hut issues, and I feel like the one I remember was the X-Men in cyberspace. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, like, for those of you who are of the, the Zoomer generation, back in the 90s, there were a lot of stories about virtual reality and, like, the internet as a place that you could go, sort of, because we still didn't really understand the internet. We were still figuring out how all of it would work. We still called it the World Wide Web, and we mm -hmm. went through AOL, and it went... I just remember it because this was like also the age of like the PlayStation one and the mm -hmm. Sega Saturn and those consoles. And so those games, there would often be like a wireframe mode where like it was sort of a debug mode where you could see all the model, the 3d models, like just as wireframes that they would then put the textures on. And in comics or TV, whenever characters would like enter cyberspace, <laughs> they would become wireframe people. Mm -hmm. And so I remember very specifically that I think one of the first times I encountered that aesthetic, which is now completely gone, you will never see that again, because technology has advanced yeah. beyond that. But it was that X-Men in cyberspace where it's like storm, it's a wireframe storm. And she's like 3D kind of popping off the page because she's in cyberspace. So yeah, that was good. I also enjoyed a, a personal pan mm -hmm. back in the day. <laughs> Pizza Hut, I mean, hopefully this podcast will become a historical record for future generations. But the thing that will be amazing, if you're listening to this in 2050, post-COVID, Pizza Hut had a buffet in the middle. Oh, yeah. That was really, yeah, I don't think we're going to have those anymore I, in the future. Yeah, those always seemed risky. <laughs> well, I keep walking by them like there's one... I'm out here in the suburbs and the supermarket has like a, a lunch buffet kind of thing. Mm -hmm, you do, it's mm -hmm. like, please make sure you like sanitize your hands before using the buffet. I'm like, I think I'm good on the buffet actually. Not right now. Until right. we're vaccinated. I yeah. think I'm, I think I'm fully good. 
but it all looks amazing. So I'm just like, nope, can't, can't. It's it's actually it's a lot like being rogue because you can look <laughs> at it, but you can't touch it because it might kill you. It yeah, might kill you. It would, or, yeah, I mean, in Rogue's case, you might kill it. That's but true. in this case, it might, yeah. So it's a little bit, it's sort of a, a backward Rogue. So my thing with Rogue, it's interesting. I have a very different relationship to Rogue than I think a lot of X-Men fans do. Because as I am always saying on this podcast, my inroads to the X-Men because of my dad's collections and whatnot is the 80s stuff more than it is the 90s stuff. And I love Rogue in the 80s. She is sort of this white trash, good time girl. She's like always acting like she just hopped off the back of a truck and is going to tailgate with you and then kiss your boyfriend and steal his memories and then like mud wrestle with someone and then probably like break their pickup truck in half or something. Yeah. And then go shopping. Like that's sort of her vibe. And it's super, super fun, especially because the ex-women at that time are much more feminine, mm-hmm. generally speaking. Claremont was very into a specific type of gal who was sort of a very put-together, posh, or at least elegant kind of femme dominatrix kind of <laughs> character. I mean, that's sort of his thing, right? So you had characters like Storm, who of course ends up getting edgier over the course of the 80s, but initially is a more elegant character and in personality and temperament always is sort of more stately and then you had Psylocke join the team who was literally landed gentry from Britain yeah and Dazzler who is also kind of trashy in a fun way but is very much image conscious and very hyper girly and so just very different from the way Rogue comes in first of all she comes in as a bad guy yeah which is fun because oh, that's it. always I love her. Fun. I love her entry point Yeah, and when she comes in as a member of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, as Mystique and Destiny's daughter, she has a very butch short haircut, and she is not at all soft or feminine or elegant or any of that. She has an accent as thick as the fucking swamp, and she is here to fuck people up. She never had no proper upbringing. Right, exactly. (laughs) So... Once she joins the team, there's a lot of fun interplay, in particular with the other women. I always enjoyed that. I thought that she was a good foil for Psylocke in particular, because 80s Betsy, you know, people think of Psylocke now as being this very sort of assertive, tough fighter character. But Betsy in the 80s was assertive in a very different way. She was a lot more like Emma is now. Yeah. It was very sort of sitting a little bit at a remove and making kind of snide comments and then doing something sneaky. And so she and Rogue didn't quite see eye to eye a lot of the time because they were sort of jealous of each other. Rogue sort of jealous of Betsy's poise and Betsy jealous of the fact that no one treated Rogue as though she was breakable or delicate, which is something that always annoyed Betsy about the way people treated her. Mm. And then her relationship with Dazzler was always really fun because when she was a bad guy, she was briefly a bad guy in Dazzler's solo book before Dazzler joined the X-Men. When Dazzler was dating Warren, which I always forget happened, (laughs) it's this completely unexplained stretch where he just breaks up with Candy, I guess, off page and is dating Dazzler for a couple issues of her book. And Rogue is super jealous 
because Dazzler has a hot boyfriend and it turns out Dazzler's a mutant and Dazzler can control her powers. Dazzler has everything. So then when they're on the X-Men together, Rogue and Dazzler are just always kind of catfighting. Rogue is always trying to seduce Longshot, Dazzler's boyfriend, even though she can't do anything with him. It's more just like conceptual seduction. I don't know. I just found her a lot of fun. She was here to have a good time and to cause trouble. And her great crisis was that she was unbearably horny and had no way of doing anything about it. I mean, as some of us are at the age of 18, like, you just yeah, sort of feel it was like... relatable. <gasps> too many feelings, too many desires, yeah. don't know what to do with them. As a tween homosexual, it was a relatable dilemma. <laughs> These men don't want anything to do with you because if you touch them, they might die. So I fully uh, got that. And I think that Rogue is... And this was used to great effect in the Fox movies, although their general portrayal of Rogue is a little... Yeah. (laughs) But there's a reason they chose her as the viewpoint character, because her power is the most sort of traumatic puberty metaphor. Yeah. My issue with Rogue, and why she's never been one of my favorites, is that 90s Rogue did not do it for me. I liked her on the cartoon, where she's more like 80s Rogue. But in the comics, 90s Rogue first of all, became a Southern Belle in a way that was not the same as her previous characters. Like, she got much more designing women and much less sordid lives, was sort of how I (laughs) felt about it. I don't know. I want her to be Steel Magnolias, not designing women. More importantly, though, she was constantly mooning over Gambit. It was always about Gambit. Oh, I love Gambit, Bobby, but I can't touch Gambit because I will kill him with my powers because my powers will absorb his psyche and all of his energies. And then, like, I accidentally touched Gambit because I thought we could touch because a moment happened in the plot, but we couldn't. And so I absorbed all his memories. And now I know he has an ancient dark secret that he won't tell me and we have to break up. And, like, you know, it just was endlessly about Gambit. And the thing that was fun about Rogue to me in the 80s stuff was that there was never a man tying her down. Mm-hmm. And that's valid. Now, if you like Gambit... Which I do. I can understand. I am gambivalent, as I've said previously on this podcast. You have said that. Um, I, I love him, and I love them together, and I have shipped them forever. Tell us about it. I absolutely will, because... And this is not to try to, you know, convince you to like something you don't like. No, no, no. That's why I... That's what... The whole premise of this podcast is people who love these characters come on. I mean, the Gambit episode eventually will be quite funny because I'll just be (laughs) sitting around going, well, that's, I guess, interesting. You know, it'll be... Right? So... But what I what I hope I can do is is sort of let you in to the the world of of the heads of the people who do love this. Um, Because I'm certainly not alone. And... No. They're, they're, I know they're one of oh, the. Oh no, I'm very much alone. Most like it's a, it's one of the most popular. And couples I do think I mean there comics. are certainly valid criticisms of that, as of any of the ex relationships. You know, like there are things, and there are times when it's written better than not. I I love '90s Rogue, and I love that relationship in some ways because it is so over the top. It is high octane angst and just put that straight into my veins. I do love it. I I am a hopeless romantic as a person. I love that sort of drama. But it also, to me, um, comes from a place of their relationship being an emotional power fantasy in the same way I think that romance novels are emotional Mm. power fantasies. 
And I loved that this tough character, this powerful character, this woman who can punch through a goddamn mountain, also got to have this emotional power fantasy side to her story. I just, I adored that. And it's something that I adore in lots of other fiction as well. It's a trope that I like a lot. Their relationship follows a lot of really common romance novel tropes, especially of the the rake mm-hmm. and the woman whose love redeems him. Right. And this is, of course, a fantasy and scoundrels with a heart of gold are a trope that are so much better in fiction than they ever turn out in real life. <laughs> uh, in real life, they're just scoundrels and that's sad. But in fiction, in fantasy, we can have this this idea that love can overcome these challenges and that love can get through these seemingly impossible barriers of, of whatever kind. The idea that love is enough to bring a man like that to his knees. It is a power fantasy for, for a lot of, of women and, and people of other genders as well, I'm sure. But just from where I'm coming at, it's it's that. My sense has always been that female readers as a group tend to love that couple and that Gambit in particular is a character beloved by women, which I just think is funny because he's <laughs> such an asshole. But I get it. Like, I get it. I mean, it. many of us make poor choices. Um. Right. No, I, I, I like, but it, it does. He was like the bad boy of the 90s yeah. that you could tame. That's the whole appeal of the relationship, right? Especially because he's such a he's such a horny, lusty character and he has to control his libido because they can't have sex yeah. because of her powers and so he has to he's like giving up his rakishness completely yeah. to be with her. And it is. It's it's very Regency romance novel. It's very like all of those tropes which I also love. I I also just I adore about him that the instant he meets Rogue it's over for him. And multiple authors have affirmed that, that like, it's love at first sight, he's done. He's a flirt still, absolutely, because that's just the kind of person he is. But he knows immediately that's the love of his life. And it sort of takes her longer to get there, which I think is- Much longer. Yeah, way longer. Um, An interesting aspect to their relationship. And it really doesn't really resolve until um, the Kelly Thompson- series i was about to say until they until like right before they get married yeah yeah really (laughs) um but throughout all of that i love that they are also friends like they Mm -hmm. stay very good friends even when they're not actually together together and when they are really apart when that when they're in different totally spheres of of what they're doing well her whole avengers period (laughs) neither of them (laughs) does well like they are they are demonstrably better together than they are apart which is also interesting to me um i i love them as a couple i love i love a battle couple i love couples that that fight together and and can play off of each other's strengths and have that um in sync quality to them when they're fighting sentinels or whoever else like i just love it yeah well the romies are going to come for me for saying this but my my one thing is that i would say they are bad they they do poorly when they're apart, except that I think she does very well in two circumstances. And one is when she's with Joseph. And one is when she and Magneto get back together in Legacy. I love both of those periods for her as well. And I, I like it for them and their relationship. 
it also shows his growth because he is Correct. super he is super pissed about Joseph and I find it hilarious. It's so funny. Oh but God, then when so she funny. gets back, when she gets with actual Magneto in Legacy, he's kind of like, oh, you no, know. He pushes her into it. He yeah. says, he's the one who says to her, like, you're not ready for us to be together right now. No. I know we're endgame, but you don't yeah, know that go yet. go figure this out. So right. you should go bang it out with somebody else. Magneto, sure, fine. That's the fine choice. Why um, not? Yeah. I feel like, Gambit minds less with Magneto because like Remy and Magneto are not similar. Like there's no, he doesn't see that as like, if it was rogue and even Wolverine, cause there's that mm. period in, is it Milligan? Weird moment. Yeah. There's that in the yeah. Golgotha arc where. When all of their heads are being like. Yeah. Like they're with all and... crazy because there's, there's a parasite. It's a ripoff of the thing, but yeah. it's, you know, all ripoffs of the thing are fun. Basically it's parasites like driving them crazy. And. Logan's like, oh, Rogue, I've always wanted you. And they like make out for a second and then Rogue starts to kill him because that's what happens when you make out with Rogue. But throughout that, it's like Gambit also seems to be feeling a vibe between them and is like not into that. But that's because I think Wolverine's like also a bad boy that you could tame. Like that's also the appeal of Wolverine. That's why Wolverine and Gambit are the stars of the 90s. Yeah. X-Men, because that was, it's like them and, and Ninja Psylocke, because that was sort of the... It was the aesthetic of the 90s, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, everyone's a bad boy or a bad girl (laughs) now. That's why Scott and Jean are so unbelievably boring in the 90s. I know, they make them so dull. They're so dull. And Storm's dull, which is wild. The idea that you could make Storm dull. Yeah, well, I think it's why, like, I I did a big reread prepping for this this episode, and I, I was thinking about exactly what it is I like about the 90s stuff, and it's not like the actual storylines right no i'm always thinking like that's that's a that was a great concept and then you go back and you actually look at it's like, like oh. no no but, but it's like not good rogue has such good moments inside not great storylines mm-hmm. and so that's i think like i love her moments in the 90s and i sort of forget everything else that happens around those moments like onslaught that was weird but rogue had a couple <laughs> of excellent panels and like there are they're like single panels that are just burned in my brain forever but it's like oh right that happened during that whole thing i had completely forgotten about yeah well the thing about being a madeline Pryor fan <laughs> is that the 90s are explicitly a nightmare minefield of which issues of x-man can i read <laughs> where she gets to do cool things like talk to celine or like confront mm-hmm. Jean and hash it out a little bit or have weird interplay with Threnody, who is kind of a cool character that, again, conceptually great, execution, not so great. I have a Threnody pitch. <laughs> Point is, it's like, but then there are other issues where, like, she and the alternate reality version of her son make out. And you're like, mm, mm, no. That's weird. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's too weird for me. Don't worry about it if you don't know what I'm talking about. Big don't worry about it. But, yeah, they, the 90s are just sort of like that, like... I don't know. I look back on it and I'm like, Age of Apocalypse was fun. Yeah, I love the AOA. That's about it. I mean, I, I can't think of really any other storyline from the 90s that I'm super big on. I would say I liked the early run of 90s X Factor and like when they're all in therapy with Doc Samson and like <laughs> that stuff. And I love the earlier, like the first half of the 90s in Excalibur as well. But somewhere around, somewhere around Phalanx Covenant, Mm. it all kind of goes awry, I think. Yeah, the overarching plots get a lot messier. Yeah, AOA really feels like the cutoff for me. Like, that is where I'm just kind of done until Morrison. (laughs) 
That's just how it is. But with Rogue and Gambit, it's interesting because that is really, I mean, Gambit doesn't get to debut until the very end of the 80s. So once he's in there and he takes off as a character, almost all of their core storylines as a couple are in the 90s. So you kind of have to look, and a lot of it, what's interesting is a lot of it is in side stuff. So like you have, Mm -hmm. if you really want to read Gambit and Rogue, ignore Executioner's song and read like Gambit and Rogue go to New Orleans. Because that's sort of their stuff. Yeah. With his wife and all of that. Oh, Belle. Belladonna. Belladonna. And then, of course, they have the whole Antarctica arc. I swoon. (laughs) See, and it's funny, like women, I always think I'm just like female X-Men fans are just like, gaga for that arc i absolutely am i remember that arc mostly because because i wasn't really reading very much at that time because that's right that's after aoa right yeah yeah but i remember it because it was the jumping off point for so much slash fan fiction on the internet because (laughs) every it felt like every woman on the internet who loved the x-men and wrote fan fiction was writing a series it would be like 20 chapters (laughs) where raimi and rogue break up because she finds out about his past with Mr. Sinister. Mm-hmm. She abandons him in Antarctica. Yes. And then he picks up the pieces with Iceman or Wolverine. Oh, see, so you and I read different you and I read different fanfic. That I'd say the slash fanfiction. There's also, I'm sure, lots of fanfiction all about him and Rogue getting back together. Well, there's also him, Rogue, and Joseph. I've as, read those too. Yes. <laughs> I like those. I like the take on Joseph that he had crushes on both of them. And yeah, I like that too. Didn't quite know what to do with it. <laughs> I also enjoy that. Well, because here's the thing about Gambit. I've said this previously, but if you were to choose one male x-men character to just reveal his bisexual it's very absolutely casually it's remy. yeah it is absolutely remy he has chaotic by disaster energy and i say that he being does a chaotic by disaster myself like right he does well he just does. in particular the in my experience this is very anecdotal but i feel like queer women love gambit you know it's like a very specific thing like lesbian and bisexual women love gambit Based off of my sample size of people I know, I would say that's true. Yeah. We can't, I can't speak for all of my people, but yeah. The DC equivalent is like, they love Dick and Jason. You're not a DC person. Not I know, even but slightly. Like, <laughs> but some of the listeners will be like, uh-huh. I'm like, they just love Robins and Nightwings and all of that okay. stuff. Because yeah. they're also like bisexual seeming disasters, yeah. essentially. And Gambit is fun that way. What has turned me around on Gambit as a character is when women write him. Oh my God, yes. Like Marjorie Lou's Gambit is great. I enjoyed Kelly Thompson's Gambit. And I am loving Gambit and Rogue in Excalibur right mm-hmm. now. I've been enjoying it in the same way that like, I mean, the, the overall story arc is much better than the 90s arcs, but I also have been like, yeah. I can pluck out my little moments and hold right, them to my heart. Su- they've been supporting characters yeah. for sure. But I don't need them to always be Mr. and Mrs. X, although I would happily take a 300 issue run of Mr. and Mrs. X <laughs> if they gave it to me. But I don't need that. Shout out, Teeny, friend of the pod, and <laughs> me. You are my first client besides Teeny to appear on the pod. I know, actually. I feel very honored. Yeah, I'm I'm sure I'm going to get Steve Orlando on here in the new year. But otherwise, you are, you are the first. Well, I've, I've been loving uh, her run on Excalibur as well. I think it's a lot of fun. I, I love the 
mutant and magic mix up that's it's happening. so good and i loved in particular in terms of their relationship i really love the scene where she tells him that she doesn't want to have kids or that she thinks she doesn't want to have kids what, what she says is not now maybe not ever right and i like that yeah i am someone who i, I would very much love for them to have babies someday we've seen in multiple different futures that they do right, that they do in some reality yeah I don't need it now. I don't need it for 20 years of publication right. time, maybe. Like, I would rather have them stay an active battle couple for as long as possible. And I super don't want her to do it because Krakoa makes her do it. Well, right. I mean, <laughs> and the thing about, you know, and if you look at Excalibur, there's a very obvious counterexample, which is Brian and Megan had a baby, mm-hmm. and now they're mostly retired as characters. Yeah. Because that's what happens. So... I agree. I mean, in the X-Men, if you have a baby, you either kind of leave the narrative or the baby has to leave the narrative and then come back as a grown-up. <laughs> yeah, like something terrible and tragic is going to happen to that cable child. Yeah. or, right, exactly. Hope, I mean. Yeah, it happens a couple times. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a safe thing to do. Not a safe thing to do, reproduction in the X-Men universe. I mean, let's not even get into what happened to Wanda. Uh, uh. But <laughs> but she doesn't count, not anymore, the pretender. <laughs> <laughs> that's just it that's just to to make people mad it's fine she's fine she's not fine she's, she's not, not fine. fine i hate wanda we'll get into that <laughs> we'll get into, we get can get into that when we talk Avengers, about i'm sure yeah but yeah but to go back i i just liked it because most superhero characters are therefore never going to have children because editorially etc that's just not going to happen but it's rare for a female character in any fiction Mm-hmm. To say, I'm not really interested in being pregnant, ever, yeah. particularly. And I don't really think I want to have children. At least that's how I'm feeling right now. Yeah. And I just thought it was a very mature, real, interesting conversation. It made me like the two of them as a couple more. Yeah. Um, because he was just sort of like, all right, share, like, whatever you want, you know? We keep making with the sexy time, so everything, right. everything be fine. <laughs> like, everything be okay. fine, share. Yes, it's great. I cannot possibly do a Cajun accent. I feel like no one can. I, I mean, mine just sort of slants a different kind of Southern, but... Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> I don't want a child, Raimi. Oh, Cherie, we do not want a child. We do not need to have a child. That's it. That's exactly it. That was perfect on go. both yeah. counts. <laughs> All right, good, because I got my UD. <laughs> You, uh, well, that leads to an interesting question, which is, if you are superhumanly durable, how do they do the IUD? I don't know. She has pierced ears. so But those were probably pierced before she absorbed Carol Danvers' power. True, but she's been, like, depowered at different times. And yeah, now she has Wonder Man's powers. Yeah. Still, right? Yes, she does. I think so. Which I think is it's the still him. only thing I like to have come out of the Avengers years, really, is that and she got the rogue powers back because we think of them as rogue powers more than Ms. Marvel powers at this point. They are. And I sort of love that writers have just sort of decided like, no, oh, rogue should be able to fly and punch through buildings. Rogue and- should be like Supergirl because yeah. she just should. She just should. Yeah. It just seems right. Well, it's the version of the character that people like. I mean, that's the thing is that's what the movies got wrong, I think, yeah. is that what made rogue uh, the breakout character of the cartoon and why you would use rogue instead of Kitty Pride or Jubilee as your viewpoint character is that she was fun. Yeah. And then the rogue in the movies was just not 
No. Fun. And it's Even just... X-Men Evolution, which had her be kind of sullen or whatever, made it interesting. It's like, oh, she's a goth. Like, that's fun. Yeah, and that was a fine 2001 spin-off. Exactly, <laughs> right. It's like, okay, sure. Sure, fine, whatever. Um, no, I, I completely agree. And once again, I think Carrie did a nice job with it because he gave her other things to do when she didn't have those powers. But when she just sort of has nothing, it's like, I don't know what's going on yeah. here. He compensated for the loss of the flying brick power set <laughs> by making her a leader in a way that she yeah. hadn't really been. I mean, she was briefly like during the Claremont Revolution era yeah. in like 2000. But there's a reason no one ever talks about that era. And it's that it's just not very good. Yeah, it's pretty weak. It's pretty and weak. she kind of was the leader in like the late 90s also when they went into Shi'ar space, when Joseph was around. Yeah, for, for a hot second. And then like when yeah. they fought the goth, which was a weird little mini art. It was very yeah, strange. the goth. And then, yeah, she's always leading them when they're fighting something stupid, like the goth yeah. or the neo. But in, in Legacy, it's fun because, well, first she has the arc in the regular title before it becomes Legacy with the children of the vault and all of that mm-hmm. stuff she's fun there and it's all about really her and mystique's relationship up through that. messiah complex yeah I, I love that part of the run especially it's so good the milligan stuff is insane but like fun it's it's but it's completely insane it's bonkers it, yeah but then but then carrie really comes in and manages astonishingly to steer it back onto course in a way that makes sense for both characters, which I think is impressive and fun to read. Yeah. It reads a lot better now when you can read from Milligan through Carrie and just sort of go in one It does. I I liked, and I liked the whole Carrie run better rereading it now than I remember liking it at the time. Like at the time there were things I liked and there were things mm-hmm. I was like, mm, I don't know about this. But now sort of having a fuller arc to go through definitely does help all of that. I find it a lot easier to read Decimation Era stuff now that I know the Decimation ends. Yeah, yeah. Like, when we were For in sure. it, I found it not fun. But now, reading Utopia, knowing this is a real low point, but they'll be on Krakoa in 10 years, it's a lot more palatable for me. Yeah. But I was going to say, back to the the idea of, of her, of the rogue powers as we think of them, um, that invulnerability aspect, I think, is something else that attracted me to the character, especially when I was younger. Mm-hmm. That idea of of being invulnerable, of not being able to be hurt. When you're a 15-year-old girl, <laughs> that's a big thing. And it's that idea that like she's at the same time that she's invulnerable outside, she's very vulnerable inside. And you don't want anyone right. to know that, that you have these soft and squishy emotions, but you so sort of hope someone would notice, but it has to be the right someone who notices. And like I think that aspect of her I really vibed with when I was younger, especially. Mm-hmm. The other thing about the 80s stories I really enjoy is the whole thing with Carol is this very understandable teenage mistake. Because she's like 19 when she's introduced, right? 18. She is explicitly 18 in one of the issues right after she joins the X-Men because yeah you're right it's yeah, when she's, she's like it's when she's having a Carol like can't control herself thing and right, she's like wait a minute I'm not that say. old I haven't had these experiences I'm 18 which means she <laughs> right. might have been 17 when in the brotherhood yeah it's like she was a child she was an actual child and y'all are being very hard on her <laughs> for that I mistake think the she made streak really threw them all off they didn't realize because yeah she's about the same age as Colossus she's only a little bit older than Kitty. Barely, yeah. You know, and so there's this very interesting 
thing there, which is she makes this very understandable mistake in part because her moms are terrorists, <laughs> yeah, you who know, have taught her to also be a terrorist. Like I said, never had no proper upbringing. <laughs> right. But then there's this whole thing where Carol lives in her head mm-hmm. for years of publication. And I always found that really interesting. I found the way they would talk to each other very interesting. They would have like mental conversations. Mm-hmm. Sometimes Rogue would get knocked out or something and Carol would take, take over. over. Yeah. And what was always really funny to me about that, there's a great moment at the beginning of the Inferno. At the beginning of Inferno, Rogue and Psylocke are having a sparring match, mm. basically, because Psylocke is testing out her new body armor for Madripoor that Wolverine got her. It's that cool cloak and body armor outfit that I love. And they don't like each other. They've just never vibed, particularly. Mm-hmm. Rogue thinks that Psylocke is this uptight bitch, and Psylocke thinks Rogue is trash. And they just don't get on. And then... Rogue goes a little too far physically taunting Betsy and Betsy just telepathically lashes out and knocks her on her ass. And it's Carol that wakes up mm-hmm. and Piotr's like, what is this? You know, like, <laughs> she's like, what? what am I? That is not Rogue's voice because it's not Rogue's voice. The, that's the thing that's interesting is Carol speaks with her own yeah. accent from the North and sometimes her eyes turn blue and she's Carol. Her eyes Carol. turn blue, yeah. which is insane, but it's like, whatever, that's fine. It's comic books. They can't get her eye color right anyway. I get so annoyed every time that she doesn't have green eyes. It's like, damn it. They can't even get Jean's eye color right. I feel like Jean has blue eyes half the time, and Jean and Madeline having green eyes is really sort of a thing. important, honestly, to the plot. Like, they have the same yeah. eyes, and yet they're blue sometimes. Because people just forget. Yeah. Or sometimes Jean has green eyes and Madeline has blue eyes, like in the same issue or vice versa. <laughs> it's like, wait like, a the minute. Whole, the whole point is they're identical. I just reread Inferno recently because I did the My Marvelous Year podcast. Uh, they invited me to come do Inferno because I have a brand, clearly. <laughs> um, and I was just noticing that in a couple of issues. I was like, guys, come on. The plot is about them being identical in this issue. <laughs> And, but what I love about that scene is that as soon as Betsy realizes it's Carol, she's like, oh, Carol, hi. And they just treat... Because uh, everybody likes Carol. Yeah, it happens throughout. <laughs> and I think it's actually why I don't like the 80s stuff as much, because a lot of Rogue's most interesting moments in the 80s are actually when she's Carol or when Carol is like, they're always about Carol. It doesn't feel like they're about her as much. I just think that there's something really sad about the fact that Rogue has always wanted a home and finds a home but everyone there would kind of rather hang out with Carol. Yeah. There's something really, it feels very teenage angst to me. It's like, you all just, you all like my sister better. Like it's that kind of thing. And I think that is another part in the different ways that it does sort of keep happening in different forms through the nineties and two thousands, that issue of being alone in the crowd, those issues of identity are other things that I really feel connected to with the character, especially when I was younger myself. Um, I'm someone who I have always had really intense friendships. And I tend to pick up traits from my friends. And especially when I was younger, that was a thing that happened a lot. Absorbing them a little. A little bit in in the way that, I mean, lots of teenagers do that. You try on different personalities and and you adopt things. But I was self-aware of it, and I couldn't stop, even when I was aware that was something I was doing. And and there was all this stuff going on in my poor little 16-year-old head about, you know, who am I really? What's real? Who am I? And it sounds a little melodramatic and ridiculous from the vantage point of 35, but 
I remember being 15. I do not mock being 15. It is so hard to be a 15-year-old girl. And sometimes you just want to punch things into the stratosphere, and Rogue got to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and I loved it. And she also gets to define herself in a way that a lot of characters don't get to do. We don't know anything about Rogue for a very long time. I know. Besides the fact that she was adopted by Mystique and Destiny, that she's from the South, <laughs> and that she is really horny. Those are sort of, that's sort of all we get. Yeah. We don't even know her name. I know. And for most of my life, on the trading cards, the word unrevealed, whenever I see the word unrevealed in any context, my first thought is Rogue from the X-Men. Mm -hmm. Because it was always what it said on the back of the trading card, secret identity, unrevealed. Real name, unrevealed. Because we just didn't know. And there is that moment in the 90s after they've started dating when Rogue says to Gambit. Almost tells him. She's like, you know if you want to know my real name, I'll tell you. And he says, I don't need to know that. It doesn't matter to me. Not important to me, Cher. And she's pleased by that, clearly. Because Rogue is the name she likes. And using. owns, yeah. Yeah, and later stories, I mean, so the volume three of Rogue, like mm. that solo where mm. we learn all about who her biological parents are and they were like in a cult and it's all- I hate that miniseries. I really do. I hate it for so many reasons. I hate... Okay. I also hate it. I have spent the last 16 years making my peace with the name Anna Marie, even though it is clearly only her name because of the movies. Ugh. That is what this episode is going to be called, because I do call it their, I know. their real name. Although, I know. You know what I noticed is that even after that, still every once in a while, they will still put Anna Marie in quotations <laughs> as though... Right, as though it's an alias. Yeah. yeah. But... That one established that Rogue was like a name she got given as an unruly child or whatever. And I didn't yeah. like that because I liked the idea that Rogue was a name that Destiny Mystique gave her. Yes. Well, and like I also nickname. I also hated that miniseries that it like creates this severe aunt that raised her and that she then goes, I have to say goodbye to my real mother. And I'm like, your real mothers are Mystique and Destiny. Yeah, right? <laughs> Those are your mamas. <laughs> what the hell are you talking about, girl? It, it felt a little bit like that mini was referencing the Lobdell issue of Unlimited that is a continuity error. And as much as I do love, I do love the visual of her in the swamp with the shotgun when Mystique comes yeah, up to her. right. Like, I love that frame, but no, I so prefer to think of her as Raven and Irene's child. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fine that she, that they found her at four or five or something rather than, you know, as an infant, but... Well, I like Claremont's original plan that she yeah. was their biological child. Oh, God, I, mean, I love that. Yeah. It's better. It's just better, much like with Nightcrawler. And also, it would make her and Nightcrawler really interesting. They've never yeah. really gone there with them. No, they occasionally like refer to, oh, yeah, that's my brother, but that's they never. That's my brother, but like, not They never really. explore it at all. Or the fact that, you know, Mystique clearly likes her adoptive daughter <laughs> so well, much right. better. And I think that if they had. I think that if Claremont had been allowed to do that, and they were biological siblings, even if they weren't raised together, writers would feel compelled to explore that relationship yeah, more. Yeah, to make more of a connection between them, and I, I would like that. So I'm all for a retcon that establishes that that entire Rogue miniseries was a hallucination brought on by those cult demons or whatever. Co-signed. Completely co-signed. And one of my favorite things about Mike Carey's run is after Necrotia, 
when Rogue gets to talk to Destiny. She, we so rarely get to see that on panel. Yeah, well, because she died before Rogue was that major a character. So for her to come back briefly, she's like, I only have one day. And two pages, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but that always gets me like every, I mean, I, I am not a Buffy and Angel as a couple person at all. I am a Cordelia Angel person, as I have said on this and other podcasts in passing. <laughs> However, that one episode in the first season of Angel where like Buffy and Angel get one day together to be happy and then it's taken from them forever. <laughs> like, we only have one day. Cordelia and Angel, of course, also get a very tearjerkery, we only have one day episode mm. toward the end of Angel. I love that shit. It always gets me right. So when Rogue's like, oh my god, mom, you're alive. And Destiny's like, unfortunately, it's not going to last. I can already see it. I know. But they get to talk and Destiny gets to be like, I'm so proud of you. And it's a moment in time where Rogue and Mystique are very estranged. Yeah. Because of that whole Mystique shooting her and then almost killing the mutant messiah. (laughs) Right. And that time Mystique stabbed her in the gut and almost killed her because she was mad about the time that Rogue didn't break her out of prison. And then there was that time that she tried to seduce Gambit so that she could break up Rogue and Gambit because she thought that Gambit wasn't good for Rogue. Mm -hmm. There was a lot going on in that period with the two of them. So I think that... (laughs) It was good for Rogue to get a chance to talk to Irene because due to the fact that Mystique and Destiny's relationship wasn't allowed to be explicit in the 80s, you never got to see Rogue talk to Irene as though Irene was her mother. And so it was just really nice to get that moment, even if it was brief. And whenever Chekhov's Destiny emerges on Krakoa, as she undoubtedly will, probably like a couple years from now. so excited. It's going to be, it's going to be good. Because Hickman's destiny is terrifying. Savage, in the best possible I way. I love her. In the best possible way. In a like, hmm, all right. I saw where this is going, so we're just going to have to set you on fire now. Oh my I- God. <laughs> I mean, first she verbally eviscerates Moira. Oh yeah. And then she's like, and now I'm going to burn you to death slowly, slowly. So you can remember this conversation next time so that we don't have to have it again. <laughs> <laughs> badass i it's so love good. it it's so good i screamed and also that issue of x-men where you get the flashback with her and mystique where the mystique spotlight episode where mm-hmm. she wants her wife back but irene just being like so uh in the future after i'm dead and Mystique's like after you're what and she's like not important don't, don't worry, worry about, about it, it. <laughs> after i'm dead there's going to be a paradise where they can bring me back from the dead and refuse to and when they refuse to and they try to explain to you why they're not doing it they are lying to you and you're gonna have to burn the whole place to the ground (laughs) and it's just sort of like oh mistakes like i don't understand any of this but i accept that that's okay that sounds like me yeah you're right it's a lot like right before destiny died and she was just sort of like you should be nicer to forge because you two are going to be very close one day (laughs) intimately close and and mistakes just like what are you that's gross and she's like look uh, just trust me on this one. I uh, I know what I, I just, this is what I do. So, and Mystique's like, I would never touch him. But Dustin's like, I'm just saying. You will in about this many years. <laughs> yeah, it's like circa around 1994, you guys are going to be doing it. So maybe be nice to him. And honestly, one thing I appreciate about the writers who came after Claremont with Destiny, because they often just dropped his plots like a stone in a way that was not great. But everything Destiny predicts does come true, which is just nice because it would be irritating if 
she said things like that. Like the 12, for example, Mm -hmm. he lays out that stuff and then they just biff it completely. And none of it ties into what he had set up or what Simonson had set up. So it's always nice when it's like, oh, but Destiny said that the Deacon Forge would be in love and they end up in love for a minute. Like, it's like, okay, thank you. I appreciate you tying up that loose end. Well, I think that might be a good moment to segue into the Cerebro character file on Anna Marie LeBeau, not to be confused with Marie Dancanto, <laughs> her name in the movies, and Claremont immediately on Extreme named a different character that, just to let you know, it's not Rogue's name. Yep, yep he sure did. <laughs> that was funny. I thought that was funny. <laughs> How about this? It's time for the Cerebro character file on Rogue. X-Men, X-Men. Anna Marie, known for most of her publication history solely by the codename Rogue, is one of the most popular X-Men characters introduced after 1980. Created by writer Chris Claremont and artist Michael Golden, Rogue debuts in 1981's Avengers Annual No. 10. She was initially slated to appear, however, in Ms. Marvel 25, also by Claremont, with artist Mike Vosberg. Artwork for that story was partially completed, but the abrupt cancellation of Ms. Marvel meant it would go unpublished for a decade. Rogue is first introduced as a villainous character, an enemy of Carol Danvers, the Avenger Ms. Marvel. The teenage foster daughter of Mystique, leader of the new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, Rogue has joined her mother and her other mother, Destiny, though that relationship would not be confirmed on page for decades, in fighting for mutant liberation through terrorism. Rogue has the mutant power to absorb the superhuman abilities, memories, and personality of anyone with whom she makes skin-to-skin contact. Unfortunately, she cannot control this power, leaving her isolated from other people. Her absorption is typically temporary, but she quickly learns that prolonged contact will make the transfer permanent and may lead to the death of the victim. In an origin story that wasn't printed until many years later, intended for the cancelled Ms. Marvel 25, Destiny, a precognitive mutant who can see the future, warns Mystique that Carol Danvers will one day bring great harm to their daughter Rogue, costing the young woman her very soul. Mystique vows to prevent this, even if it kills her. Overhearing only the end of the conversation, Rogue decides to hunt Ms. Marvel down herself to protect Mystique. When she attacks Carol Danvers, she finds herself outmatched, as Carol is more capable of resisting Rogue's power than anyone else she's encountered before. She holds on too long and accidentally permanently absorbs Ms. Marvel's superpowers and memories, as well as a perfect copy of her psyche. Tormented by Carol's voice in her head, Rogue tosses the comatose woman off a bridge, hoping her death will end whatever's happening to her. Carol is rescued by her friend Spider-Woman, and Charles Xavier is able to restore her memories, but not any of the emotions associated with them. Rogue, meanwhile, finds that nothing can get Carol out of her head. This is the loss of her soul that Destiny had predicted. In Rogue's first printed appearance in Avengers Annual 10, we're told about the encounter between Rogue and Carol Danvers, which occurred off-panel. In an effort to help Mystique free some of her brotherhood from prison, where they're being held after the Days of Future Past storyline in Uncanny X-Men, Rogue temporarily absorbs power from several other Avengers. She's eventually defeated by the remaining Avengers and escapes with Mystique. With Ms. Marvel cancelled, Chris Claremont moved both Rogue and Carol Danvers to his successful Uncanny X-Men title. Rogue next appears in 1982's Uncanny X-Men 158, where Carol helps the X-Men infiltrate the Pentagon to destroy the government's files on them. They encounter Rogue, who's there because of Mystique's civilian identity as DARPA Deputy Director Raven Darkholm. Danvers recognizes her immediately, and a fight breaks out in which Rogue absorbs the powers of Storm and Wolverine. In experience with powers like Storm's, she's unable to control them and is swiftly overpowered and blown away. 
Then she and Mystique and Destiny team up with a dire wraith to fight Rom, the Space Knight. Don't worry about it. What's important is that she briefly absorbs Rom's personality and feels his inner nobility, which makes her long to be a better person herself. Rogue next appears in Dazzler 22, where she joins Mystique and Destiny in attacking Warren Worthington III, aka the Angel, the only X-Man with a public identity. Mystique intends for Rogue to absorb knowledge of the X-Men's headquarters from Angel, but she's afraid to touch him. She doesn't know what will happen if she absorbs a physical mutation like Angel's wings. Famous singer Alison Blair, aka the Disco Dazzler, who's dating Angel at the time, manages to fight the women off by using her mutant power to transform sound into blasts of light. Rogue is a big Dazzler fan, and is furious to learn not only that Dazzler is dating the beautiful Angel, but also that she is a mutant with a controllable power. Jealous of the woman who has everything she wants, she returns to fight Dazzler a few more times, until Alice's mutant secret is revealed and the Dazzler goes into hiding. In July 1983's Uncanny X-Men 171, the reader discovers that Rogue is being driven slowly insane by the copy of Carol Danvers' psyche that is trapped in her head. Desperate, she goes to Charles Xavier for help. The X-Men object because Carol has been living with them after developing new powers and taking the codename Binary. When Carol returns to Xavier, she punches Rogue through the roof and into the sky. She informs the X-Men that she will be leaving Earth to travel with the interstellar space pirates called the Starjammers. Don't worry about it. Rogue doesn't settle in easily with the X-Men, who are highly suspicious of her despite Xavier's assurances she's genuine. Wolverine, a longtime friend of Carol Danvers, is particularly suspicious, but warms to Rogue after she's fatally wounded, saving the life of his fiancée, Mariko Yoshida. He insists she temporarily absorb his healing factor, which saves her life. Over the next few years, Rogue gradually becomes an integral part of the X-Men. When Mystique tries to rescue her from them, she's dismayed to learn Rogue came to Xavier's of her own free will. Convinced that only Professor Xavier can help Rogue process her fractured mind, she reluctantly allows her daughter to stay. After the Carol Danvers persona briefly takes over her body, leading to a conflict with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Rogue is wrapped with guilt over what she did to Carol, realizing at last the full enormity of her crime. After that misadventure as Carol gets her into trouble with the government, officials Henry Peter Gyrick and Valerie Cooper enlist the mutant inventor Forge to create a neutralizing gun that permanently disables mutant powers. After a bit of deception from Mystique, Storm goes to rescue Rogue from this fate. The two women resolve their differences, and Rogue reveals that her power first manifested when she kissed a boy named Cody and left him unconscious, absorbing his thoughts. Storm even lets Rogue absorb her powers for a moment to prove her trust, but they're attacked by Gyrick, and Storm is neutralized in Rogue's place, apparently losing her powers forever after leaping in front of the girl and taking the shot. Burdened with even more guilt, Rogue continues to serve with the X-Men. In Uncanny X-Men 194, Rogue saves them from the super-sentinel robot Nimrod by absorbing various powers at once. Confusing Nimrod by manifesting multiple mutant power signatures, she even absorbs Nightcrawler and Colossus, overcoming her fear of copying physical mutations. She's relieved to discover after the battle that her body returns to normal when the powers fade. When Dazzler, whose solo title had been cancelled, joins the X-Men, she and Rogue take time to settle their differences. They ultimately develop a mutual respect in time for the 1988 franchise-wide event Fall of the Mutants, in which the X-Men team up with Freedom Force, Mystique's former Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, now working for the government, to battle the cosmic being called the Adversary. Destiny has foreseen that the X-Men will die in battle with the Adversary, but Rogue refuses to abandon her new friends, and in the end she does indeed perish to power a spell that banishes the evil entity. Mystique is devastated and does not know that the Omniversal Guardian Roma resurrects the X-Men shortly after their deaths. Storm and Wolverine suggest taking the opportunity for the X-Men to operate undercover, and Rogue agrees to the suggestion. 
She lets the world believe she's dead and moves with the X-Men to a new headquarters in the Australian outback, attacking threats to mutant kind around the world via portals created by their ally Gateway. In Uncanny X-Men 236, Rogue and Wolverine come into conflict with agents of the anti-mutant apartheid state Genosha. The Genosian operative called Wipeout neutralizes Rogue's powers, leaving her helpless but able to touch other people for the first time since childhood. As she's being transported to prison, Genosian soldiers take the opportunity to sexually assault her. Dissociating, Rogue enters a mental space where she speaks with residue of the psyche she's absorbed in the past. She's startled to discover a solid, vibrant Carol Danvers, the full psyche she absorbed, who offers to take over their shared body and use her experience as a spy to escape from the Genosian prison. From this point on, Rogue and Carol begin sharing Rogue's body, acting as a team, with Carol taking over if Rogue is knocked out. Intriguingly, the Carol persona is able to control Rogue's mutant power, suggesting Rogue's own lack of control is psychological. This status quo lasts until the 1989 franchise-wide event, Inferno, in which Rogue tries and fails to absorb the powers and psyche of the villain Mr. Sinister, whose stronger mind overpowers her. Frightened by this experience, she begins suppressing the Carol personality, who feels compelled to take over their shared body again by force. The two don't have time to resolve this argument, as during a rematch with Nimrod in Uncanny X-Men 247, Rogue is dragged through the Siege Perilous, a mystical gateway that judges all who cross through it and gives them a new life. Over a year after her disappearance in 1990's Uncanny X-Men 269, Rogue finds herself back in her room at the X-Men's abandoned Australian headquarters, a few weeks after she entered the siege. At first believing the siege was a hoax, she realizes that she no longer has Ms. Marvel's powers, and that the Carol Danvers persona has vanished from her mind. She's then abruptly attacked by a zombie Ms. Marvel, and discovers that the siege had tried to give each psyche its own new body, but didn't have enough life force to work with. Only one of them can survive, and they're stealing life energy from one another as they battle. Escaping through one of Gateway's portals to the Savage Land, Rogue is pursued by Carol. She decides to let Carol win, because she doesn't want to kill her again, but is rescued by Magneto. The Master of Magnetism was believed dead, but has actually just been chilling in the Savage Land. When Rogue wakes, she discovers he has used technology to kill the reborn Carol and restore her powers, but not the copy of her psyche, to Rogue. With her own mutant power temporarily disrupted by this experiment, Rogue finds herself attracted to Magneto, whom she's able to touch, and they begin to develop a romance, but she quickly rejects him after she witnesses his brutal execution of the evil sorceress Zaladane, realizing she and Magneto are too morally incompatible to be a couple. Unable to reach the X-Men, Rogue travels to Muir Island, where she winds up tangled in the machinations of the Shadow Kid, who had influenced the zombie Carol Danvers after the two women emerged from the siege. After that crisis is resolved, Rogue returns to the X-Men, who integrate with the rival group X-Factor and form two new squads, the Blue Team, led by Cyclops, and the Gold Team, led by Storm. Rogue is assigned to the Blue Team and becomes a regular cast member in the new adjectiveless title, X-Men. She quickly discovers in Battle with Magneto that she has no ability to influence him despite their brief romance. Not long after this storyline, Chris Claremont, Rogue's creator, was removed from the X-Men franchise after 16 years. The majority of Rogue's storylines in the early 90s revolved around her developing romance with new teammate Remy LeBeau, codenamed Gambit, a Cajun thief from New Orleans. Rogue is distressed when the time-traveling mutant Bishop, don't worry about it, declares that in his dystopian future timeline, Gambit had betrayed the X-Men. She's further distressed when Gambit's wife, Belladonna, turns up. Gambit explains that his marriage to Belladonna was arranged as a peace treaty between the Thieves' Guild and the Assassin's Guild. Don't worry about it. And Belladonna apparently dies not long afterwards, so they kind of drop the matter. 
Rogue and Gambit grow closer after she's temporarily blinded in battle with the Mutant Liberation Front, and after her sight returns, the two decide to become a real couple. Rogue offers to tell Remy her real name, but he says it doesn't matter to him, which pleases her. 1994's X-Men Unlimited No. 4 by Scott Lobdell reveals more about Rogue's backstory, but presents a number of continuity errors with the history established by Chris Claremont. In particular, a flashback shows Rogue meeting Mystique after the activation of her mutant power. Previous stories indicated Mystique and Destiny adopted Rogue before her power manifested. Lobdell later admitted this was an error on his part. Rogue and Remy's relationship is tested when Belladonna turns out to be alive, but in a coma, and Rogue accidentally absorbs some of her memories. Not long afterward, the villain Sabretooth tells Rogue about a time when Remy manipulated a girl into loving him to steal a jewel, then allowed her to die at Sabretooth's hands. There's more to the story, of course, and the two end up confronting Sabretooth together. In the 1995 Rogue solo miniseries by Howard Mackey, readers learn more about Rogue's first love, Cody, whom she hurt with her manifesting mutant power during their first kiss. It turns out Cody has been in a persistent vegetative state ever since, and Rogue visits his bedside once a year. Note that this contradicts a 1990 classic X-Men backup story by Anne Nascenti, in which the boy, here called Freddy, confusingly, is left no worse for wear after the strange kiss. Belladonna, who's basically always showing up to cause random trouble for Rogue and Gambit, kidnaps Cody, and in the ensuing battle with Belladonna and the external Kandra, don't worry about it, Cody finally dies. A mystic enables Rogue to speak with Cody's spirit on the astral plane, and he assures her he does not blame her for something over which she had no control. He encourages her to move on and let go of her guilt over what happened to him. In 1995's X-Men 41 by Fabian Nicieza, Rogue kisses Remy when they believe the world is about to end. It doesn't, though, and after the Age of Apocalypse timeline reverts to normal, Remy is left comatose. Rogue finds herself with Gambit's memories racing around in her head, and while she can't make sense of them, she knows he has a dark secret he isn't telling her. When he recovers, Remy is not willing to tell Rogue what exactly it is she saw in his memories and she decides she can't trust him. She breaks up with him and quits the X-Men, moving down south and becoming a waitress. There she meets Joseph, who is apparently a sexy young amnesiac Magneto. Honestly, don't worry about it. Rogue is very attracted to Joseph, who seems like the man she wanted Magneto to be back when they contemplated a relationship in the Savage Land. After the onslaught crisis, she rejoins the X-Men and brings Joseph with her. Torn between Gambit and Joseph, Rogue makes her decision after the X-Men are dragged to space. Again, this is just a thing that happens to them sometimes, and end up crash-landing in Antarctica. Imprisoned by enemies with their powers negated by an inhibitor field, Rogue and Remy nevertheless take the opportunity to have sex for the first time. For Rogue, it is the first time with anyone. Immediately thereafter, the X-Men learn the dark secret Remy has been hiding. He once worked for Mr. Sinister, and helped assemble the team of mass murderers called the Marauders who then conducted the mutant massacre. Disgusted, Rogue abandons him in Antarctica, leaving him to die. After an incident where she considers having her mutant power cured, but ultimately destroys the technology to prevent it from falling into the wrong hands, Rogue feels guilty about leaving Remy behind and goes to look for him. She fails to find him in Antarctica, but they're eventually reunited and begin to rebuild their relationship. It helps that Joseph dies in a heroic sacrifice around this time. Then a lot of stuff you don't need to worry about happens until a 2000 storyline by Alan Davis and Terry Cavanaugh, where the high evolutionary uses advanced technology to deactivate the mutant gene worldwide. Rogue decides to pursue a law degree and tries to free Mystique, who was captured when her shape-shifting powers failed. Rogue refuses to commit any crimes to free her mother, which leads to a massive falling out between them even after their powers are restored. Chris Claremont then returned to the X-Men for the much-hyped relaunch called Revolution, in which Rogue is appointed field leader of the team. 
but this era was widely panned and quickly dropped, and you don't have to worry about most of it. The important thing to know is that after a mishap with an alien, Rogue begins uncontrollably manifesting power she's absorbed in the past. Then, a story by Scott Lundell, Mystique, still pissed about the whole high evolutionary thing, doesn't hesitate to mortally wound Rogue in battle. Rogue manages to absorb Wolverine's healing factor and just barely survive. When the line was relaunched again in 2001 under writer Grant Morrison, Claremont took Rogue with him to the new title, Extreme X-Men. Learning that her deceased mother, Destiny, had left behind diaries detailing the future of humankind, Rogue joins a team led by Storm for the purposes of finding the diaries and keeping them safe. She discovers that in life, Destiny had put into place arrangements that would transfer all her assets to Rogue when the time was right. The whole bunch of extremely silly adventures you don't need to worry about culminate in Rogue and Gambit losing their powers and retiring from active duty. Taking the pseudonym Anna Raven, Rogue begins working as a mechanic. Their powers return over time, though Rogue doesn't get back from his Marvel powers, and the two eventually return to the X-Men. Cyclops and Emma Frost, now in charge of Xavier's school, place Rogue in charge of a group of students, and she finds that she enjoys teaching. But when Gambit is blinded on a mission, their relationship hits the skids again. This leads into the absolutely wretched 2004 Rogue solo series, in which she goes back to her hometown in Mississippi, and we learn all about her biological mother, who was sacrificed by a magical cult and became a psychic ghost? Honestly, do not worry about it. Most of this stuff doesn't track at all with the classic stories, and all you really need to know is that Rogue's birth name is revealed to be Anna Marie, which is why this episode is called that, because sure, I guess. Once it's been revealed to the reader, more than 20 years into published stories where she's only gone by Rogue, she starts using the name Anna Marie occasionally because that's just how comics work sometimes. Later in this series, she permanently absorbs the powers of Sunfire, a classic X-Men character who has fire powers, and that's her deal for a while. Gambit recovers his sight, but their relationship is still kind of a mess, and they start doing telepathic sex therapy with Emma Frost. Around here, the decimation happens, and only 200 mutants are left on Earth, which doesn't help matters. Under writer Peter Milligan, a new student called Fox tries to seduce Gambit, and turns out to be Mystique, which is absolutely bananas, but kind of hilarious, and you should refer to the Mystique episode for more on that storyline if you're interested. After a lot of relationship angst, Gambit gets turned into Apocalypse's new horseman of death, which is really silly, and puts a pretty dramatic stop to the Rogue-Gambit romance. Under new writer Mike Carey, who would become closely associated with Rogue, Cyclops makes Rogue leader of a new field team of X-Men. She includes Mystique on the team to keep an eye on her, and makes a number of unorthodox decisions. After a new villain called Pan experiments on her and sends her powers into overdrive, she observes the alien hive mind called the Hecatomb, don't worry about it, and 8 billion psyches. This drives her pretty insane, which is reasonable, and she's in a pretty bad way until Mystique cures her at the conclusion of the franchise-wide event Messiah Complex. Mystique does this by forcing Rogue to absorb the so-called mutant Messiah, Baby Hope, the first mutant child born after the decimation. It's only by an apparent miracle that this contact with Rogue doesn't kill Hope instantly. Rogue then becomes the protagonist of X-Men Legacy, a retitling of the adjectiveless X-Men title written by Carrie. After a conflict with Danger, the sentient manifestation of Charles Xavier's Danger Room, don't worry about it, and a little help from Professor Xavier, she finally breaks through her psychological restrictions and learns to control her power, celebrating by kissing Gambit. After the new mutant haven Utopia is established, Cyclops again tasks her with being a mentor to younger mutants, and she finds herself thriving in that role. She's unsure whether to rekindle her turbulent romance with Gambit or to pursue a relationship with Magneto, who has reformed again, and makes it clear he's still super into her. She eventually chooses Magneto, which made a lot of intense Rogue and Remy shippers intensely furious. 
In the 2009 franchise-wide event Necrotia, deceased mutants around the world are briefly resurrected, including Destiny. Rogue is finally able to find closure with the mother who died so long ago, while they were still estranged. Destiny tells Rogue that her fate is bound to the child, which turns out to be Baby Hope, who has been raised by Cable in the future, don't worry about it, and is now a teenager named Hope Summers. In the 2010 franchise-wide event Second Coming, Rogue defies a direct order from Cyclops and allows Hope to go into battle. This strains her relationship with Cyclops, and after a number of traumatic events, including the Age of X reality war, don't worry about it, but it's a very cool story for Rogue, she eventually sides with Wolverine during the Schism event, and departs Utopia to teach at the new Jean Grey school for higher learning. She breaks up with Magneto because they're long distance and it doesn't really work, and then she pisses off Wolverine by contacting Cyclops about something. When the whole conflict escalates into Avengers vs. X-Men in 2012, Rogue tries to stay out of it, because the idea of fighting the Avengers brings back bad memories of her time with the Brotherhood. She eventually tries to help the X-Men, but Carol Danvers convinces her that the Phoenix Five, don't worry about it, are in the wrong. And yada yada yada, the point is, Cyclops goes Dark Phoenix and kills Professor Xavier. Then Rogue joins the Avengers. I know, we're mostly going to skip it. It's a book called Uncanny Avengers, initially by Rick Remender, and Rogue tries to be a mutant representative on Captain America's new mutant human unity squad, but mostly ends up fighting with the Scarlet Witch a lot because the Scarlet Witch is fucking horrible. At one point, Rogue accidentally murders a supervillain on live television, which is admittedly pretty funny, but the only really important takeaway from this period is that Rogue absorbs the powers of Wonder Man, a C-list Avengers character, and finally has the Ms. Marvel-style powers back again. Wonder Man kind of hangs out in her head like Carol used to, but doesn't try to take over her body or anything. Also, she dates Deadpool for a minute. That part's actually not as weird as it sounds. Jerry Duggan's run on Uncanny Avengers is fun. Anyway, then, Inhumans vs. X-Men happens, allegedly. After she stops being an Avenger, Rogue hooks up with Gambit again. They have a cute little duo miniseries called Rogue and Gambit by Kelly Thompson, where they fight this evil doctor lady and have a lot of sex. Eventually, after Kitty Pryde leaves Colossus at the altar, they decide to use the chapel, everyone's already there after all, to get married. This leads into another miniseries by Thompson called Mr. and Mrs. X. In the 2019 soft reboot Dawn of X, under head writer Jonathan Hickman, Rogue and Gambit join the new Sovereign Mutant Nation on the living island Krakoa. In the new run of Excalibur by Teeny Howard, they are quickly drafted by their old friend Betsy Braddock, formerly Psylocke, but now the new Captain Britain, into a new iteration of the magical superhero team Excalibur. Rogue is manipulated by Apocalypse into various magical shenanigans, but after a brief mystical coma, it happens, she's back and better than ever. Now, with Betsy lost somewhere in the multiverse after the franchise-wide event Ten of Swords, Rogue has stepped up to the plate to lead Excalibur into the ever-shifting extra-dimensional mystery of Otherworld, with her husband by her side and a new understanding of her powers and their sorceress potential. Rogue is sure to be at the center of more captivating stories. X-Men, X-Men! And we're back with Cass Morris, fantasy author of From Unseen Fire and the new Giveaway Tonight, published today, December 29th, 2020, Please buy it. This is how I make money. The podcast <laughs> is not. Uh, and more importantly, it's how Cass makes money and furthers her amazing career as a very, very talented writer. And if you like complicated female characters with interesting relationships and romances and struggles and powers, you will probably enjoy that series, which is sort of ancient Rome with magic that's not un X-Men like in certain ways. In some so. ways, yeah. Yeah, the powers are, are fun. So now that new readers are a little bit more versed in the character from the Cerebra character file, that's a pretty straightforward one. She hasn't been messed with that much outside of 
some of the backstory fill in yeah. stuff that we've talked but about. But she like hasn't blind... been like overwritten. Right. No, it's like just this, the weird stuff with their biological parents. And then that one mini with blind spot where it retcons oh, yeah. together like adventures that she forgot about when she was in the brotherhood. That's really it. So now that we've gone through all of that, we now are sort of more contextualized. And I think that what would be fun to talk about now is sort of your favorite rogue storylines. So like I said before, I do love the Antarctica arc. I think it's great. It is. <laughs> it is. It is. It is just. Well, if you're invested in the romance, it is the it's the black moment, as they call it in romance fiction. Right? It like it's the, just... it's the everything goes wrong. And And I wish I could tell you that like I had had you know teenage girl feelings about it and then returned to it as an adult and was like oh never mind it's like no no reread it again a few weeks ago it was like nope swooning all over it's just <laughs> who i am i i like that because like i said the the emotional power fantasy thing and that that story arc does take her i think into those places of emotional development and it's a way that feels real to me for someone who is in her early 20s at the time yeah you know she's not the freewheeling teenager that she was sort of in the 80s sliding time scale, whatever. She's a little older. She's starting to realize she wants to have a real relationship with someone. She doesn't want to just, you know, kiss and steal powers and then run away. And so I, I liked that part of her arc and development um, for the drama. I just, I love the drama of that. After that, I have most liked the authors who have carried the ball further downfield, <laughs> who haven't trapped her in, in that same mode, but who have let her progress and continue to keep having emotional growth. Yeah, I mean, that's always good, right? What I like about the Antarctica moment, I guess, and again, this is like a period of X-Men I'm just not super crazy about, but I like it because for her, I think it's important. Like I said, in the 90s, my issue with Rogue was that a lot of her storyline was just about being sad about Raimi. And I didn't find that interesting. And that storyline, I think, is interesting because she makes a choice there. And it's a moral choice. And she says, essentially, okay, I found a man who will love me despite my inability to have sex with him or to touch him or kiss him etc and i thought i would be happy for the rest of my days but it turns out he helped murder a whole bunch of innocent people not remy's finest moment and there are a lot of characters especially female characters in fiction who would be very but daddy i love him about it you know and like it wouldn't you like there are lots of women in comics in particular where the man does something unforgivable and the woman is just like, we'll work this out. Like, I love you no matter what. I like that Rogue finds out that Gambit was complicit in the mutant massacre and is like, you know what? I'm out. Now, the thing about that is that various writers have sort of left it ambiguous how much of his own self-loathing was influencing that choice at the time that because she's, sure because he has that charm no not even that because she'd absorbed him and his memories well, that's true. And, right and so, so she was right. like she's seeing his memories of it which are colored by his yeah. own guilt so like the moment when she leaves him in antarctica those panels are etched permanently in my brain but i think the actual stronger moment for her is when he comes back and they don't get back together immediately like right she's no longer influenced by 
the decision. I I don't think without his thoughts in her head that she would have left him there to die. I mean, to die. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in she did him to die. Without a shirt yeah. on. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't think she would have done that. But I do appreciate that they don't get back together right away. For a while. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good long while. And they're sort of like in an amb- they spend a lot of years in an ambiguous sort of state. Yeah. And Joseph's still around at that time. And, Joseph's yeah. still around then. But even later on, I mean, one of the things that is quite good about the Milligan run is their therapy sessions with Emma. <laughs> I think those are so funny. When they try to do like sex therapy telepathically with Emma. It's that's so funny. It's so awkward. <laughs> it's just so good. Oh my god. Because she's just like, well, I tried, darling, but there's only so much I can do in this situation. You know, maybe maybe you two just need to... I don't know. If I can't help you, nobody can, darling. Clearly. I I, I, actually, I really love any time Rogue and Emma get to interact because it just becomes a sass-off. <laughs> well, it's a lot like the Rogue and Betsy relationship from the 80s, yeah. which I really liked. And it's just that Betsy in the 90s became a completely different character, so you lost that. And I love that dynamic when it's rogue and a woman who's like up herself as like rogue would say you know Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. it's just always fun because rogue has too much respect for storm to like ever go like tit for tat like that but when it's another like self-possessed woman who's a little haughty it immediately puts her back up like it's always just you know it's that feeling of this woman's looking down her nose at me. This one thinks I'm garbage. And I'm not going to stand for that. Swamp trash. And I don't like it. Yeah, it's that. Yeah. And I appreciate that about Rogue. I appreciate that Rogue. Because the thing about the X-Men as it started was that it was this very like white middle class book. Like I've mm-hmm. talked about this on previous episodes. And part of what Claremont did was widen the net of the metaphor by making a more diverse team you know building on what ween and cochran had done in giant size but then also just building it out in various ways not just the team itself but the cast of characters around them Mm -hmm. and with rogue what he did was bring in someone who was poor yeah Totally different socioeconomic world from... He did it with Cannonball also in New yeah. Mutants. I mean, oh, those were the, Sam. And actually somewhat subversively in New Mutants because the rich boy who's very educated and posh is Roberto, who's black. Mm-hmm. And Sam is like coal miner. Kentucky coal country, yep. And that is the dynamic there. Sean speaks like three languages like you know and it's it's Sam who is like the bumpkin like the yokel and Rogue is the yokel yeah in the 80s on the X-Men and it's an interesting character be- to have for a superhero yeah because usually working class characters like that in superhero comics are villains mm, particularly yeah. up to that point I think it is notable that Rogue starred this one but Claremont just fell head over heels with her right after he created her, clearly. I mean, that arc happens pretty quickly. It does, yeah. In part because Ms. Marvel was canceled. But it leaves you, in the end, with this character who is from a white working class background who is not formally educated, particularly. Like, Mystique and Destiny sent her to high school, but not for very long, because <laughs> she nearly killed Cody and stopped going. Yeah. So, and it was like, well, now it's time for terrorism. <laughs> 
<laughs> These are skills you're going to need more, young lady. Let's do some. It's like a trade school, right? But she doesn't go to college. She goes to trade school, and the trade is mutant terrorism. <laughs> it really does. When you remember how young she is, because of course, when I was reading that for the first time, I was 11, 12, so I didn't register it. But when you realize that Gyrick is talking about killing a 17 year old girl, kid, an absolute kid, because she's a dangerous terrorist, you're just kind of like, Oh, <laughs> okay. And when Forge is like, maybe there's another way to handle it. It's like, no, it's like, there really is like when it's like, she's 17. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should try other, other method, even if she, because they think she's killed someone because she was framed. But like, even if she had killed someone, she's 17. No juvie for muties, clearly. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it is interesting, which just where she comes from and, and, and being from Mississippi and all that. I was actually thinking about this, about her accent mm-hmm. and and my accent. It's not that anything like the one I'm doing, I'm sure. It's not. Not even Although slightly. Someone from, someone from the heart of Alabama wrote in and was just like, your rogue accent is actually quite good. And I was <laughs> like, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I don't think it's good at all, but I'll try. To me, it twang, it, it either the pitch goes all over the place or it twangs slightly too far west, but I don't know. I think it's a little too Kentucky. Rogue and I are from different parts of the South, for one thing. Mm-hmm. You're from Virginia. I am from Virginia. I am a, a Blue Ridge Belle. I come from the mountains of Virginia. But like many Southerners, I have had my accent educated into submission. Right. I only hear it when you're relaxed. You do. Yes. Um, my, my friends in college used to be able to tell how much I'd had to drink by how far my accent drifted. Mm-hmm. It's a very common thing that because people hear a Southern accent and assume stupid. Right. And so those of us who get educations and want to be professional in certain ways, my academic and my professional voice is different from my natural accent, which itself varies depending on who I'm talking to. My customer service voice gets thicker because right. sometimes it's useful if the customers think you're a little stupid. Because you still live in Virginia. I do. And, and, and like I grew up, <laughs> I was born in the mountains. I grew up in Richmond. I moved back to the mountains. And so it's sort of, Richmond's accent is not as thick as the mountain accent. It's a different thing. And so I have some variety, and and you'll be hearing that you know throughout this entire podcast. But I was wondering if Rogue hasn't developed the same thing by now. Her accent varies based on who's writing her a lot. You know whether or well, not you'll they... note that it's written a lot less phonetically now. Yeah, because that fell out of vogue. Yeah, that's the stylistic difference too. But but you could also read it as her toning it down over the years. She's, she's lived, lived in, in New York yeah, now for a for long so time. long. It would be really funny to me if they made it more apparent like when she and Remy are alone <laughs> yeah like just suddenly it slips out because let me tell you I walk into Wright's Dairy right in Stanton Virginia and all of a sudden it's like oh nah, nope that's I've never left um when I'm around other people <laughs> with the same accent so it'd be sort of funny if if or when she's talking to Sam or something if it came out more strongly in my head that's what happens I would love for Emma a moment where Emma's talking to one of her siblings and just like says that something is just like wicked stupid. <laughs> that would be hilarious. She's like so angry that just, just Boston slips. just like just oozes out of her mouth and she like she grabs her own face like oh my god like covers How her mouth. Like, let that happen? Right. <laughs> anyway darling it's I'm so glad we're here let's go talk about this and then but moments ago she was like I need a coffee so bad I could fucking spit. <laughs> Her father, Winston. <laughs> My dad's from Boston. But it's a similar thing, right? There, there are certain accents that are more socially acceptable. Yeah, no, exactly. And and I think that's a fun thing to play with. And Yeah. 
I, uh, I like that for sure. I mean, I always, I hear Kitty similarly. I've always heard Kitty as having very much like an urban Jewish accent. I really enjoyed the Bernie Sanders Magneto in the last Yeah, episode. that was a great <laughs> bit from Spencer Ackerman. I always hear Kitty and her family sort of like that, like Brooklyn Jews. They're from the Chicago area rather than the New York area, but that is just sort of how it is in my head. But I'm would I hear her more like that in the Claremont years where she's written as using a lot more slang mm-hmm, and is a lot mm-hmm. more like that. And then as the character aged and also was sort of de-ethnicized over yep. time in a lot of ways, she clearly starts talking in a much more crisp, like Westchester educated way. And I just, I mean, it's just interesting. It's a form and content thing, right? Because like what that really is, is we stopped writing out accents so phonetically. Yeah. Whereas in the 70s and 80s, that was very commonplace. I mean, like, Banshee and Moira and Rain in particular, you almost have to learn how to read their dialogue as though it's in another language. (laughs) Because so many of the words are written phonetically in very strange ways. That's how I learned what Ken in the Scottish sense means. Because Rain is always saying, I did a Ken! (laughs) It's like, what the fuck is she talking about? But, you know, it's like, she doesn't understand. That's what she was saying. But yeah, it's definitely a funny thing because it, it does reflect that stylistic change, but it also sort of makes sense for these characters that have right. grown it, up now yes. in a different environment. And it's the form changing, but it reflects the content yeah, definitely in a way does. that makes sense. We talked about that with Magneto last episode. Like, does he have a German accent? Probably not anymore. No. It's been long enough. And yeah, uh, yeah. and I think, I mean, he's like 100, so. <laughs> But yeah, I I always liked that, not to go back to Buffy, but I always liked that as the explanation that was given in interviews for why James Marshall's accent as Spike was so bad, <laughs> was that he had been living in America for like 100 years, and it had just gotten wonky. Yeah. But in actuality, the actor was just American and doing a very bad British accent. <laughs> as opposed to Alexis Denisoff, who was doing a perfect British accent to the point where people don't know he's American. I mean, I'm not British. If you don't like Alexis Denisov's accent on that show, you're well within your rights, but <laughs> a lot of British people have commented on how good it is. To go back, I would say that my favorite rogue storylines are the ones that are not about a romance. That's just my preference, in part because of my general gambivalence. I did find Joseph very hot, which was weird because I'm not really into long hair ever, so which is one reason for my gambivalence. I feel like he's always got like shoulder length hair and some reasons like ponytail. Oh, it's just like it's not my aesthetic. Or at he all. has like the nineties floppy hair, which Yeah, also as a girl really who grew up aesthetic. in the nineties, that still works for me. It's like, oh it's a good look. I like it. <laughs> I get it. It's just not my it's not my thing. That's fair. I reread the Carrie stuff recently because I hated the destination so much that I realized doing a reread that I had skipped a lot more of it than I thought Mm. I had. And so it was really nice to go back and be like, oh, I missed this whole little arc or whatever. And and just breeze right through all of it. And I love that story because Gambit's there, Magneto's there. There are romance elements, but it's much more about Rogue deciding who she wants to be. Yeah. And which man she's with isn't really material to the question. It's just something that comes up occasionally because she would like to have a partner, but it's more about her learning that she loves being a teacher. I love that. As Which I really like because given that she didn't have a formal education, yeah. the fact that she loves educating is very interesting. I, I, I adore that sequence as well because 
it it does show that maturation. Um, yeah. It lets her grow up. I think the the way she takes on those romantic relationships also shows more maturity. Becomes very mature, yeah. yeah. And the guys handle it great, too. They're both like, whatever she wants. <laughs> well, I would hope Magneto would, since he's like 85. Yeah. I mean, you would think... <laughs> there are a lot of people who I know are... are that's one thing where I think your mileage may vary a lot. The the rogue Nito. Oh, a ship. lot of people hate that. A lot of people completely hate I that. Know. And I get it. I get it. I'm not like, listen, I don't want them to be together, but I think their dynamic is interesting. It is. It's a lot of fun. And I particularly enjoyed it with Carrie because I felt like Carrie took, because the, the version of it that happens in the nineties is absurd in the <laughs> early nineties. Like it's yeah. completely <laughs> absurd. And I enjoy it just because of, like, the high drama, Zaladane, Savage Land, drag Fantasia of it all. Because Zaladane's just swanning around being <laughs> essentially a Final Fantasy villainess. And Rogue's wearing, like, three square inches of clothing. <laughs> and so is Magneto! He's in, like, a loincloth. I mean, it's just, it's really, it's really fun. But it's absurd, and the relationship doesn't make any sense. So when no. Carrie was like, remember when Rogue and Magneto were fucking for a while? Why don't I do something with that? But, like, make them recognizable They characters. were explicitly not fucking. In the 90s? No, it is absolutely established that Antarctica is her first time. Okay, they, okay, yes, they don't, okay, they don't have intercourse. No. That's true. They are but together, like, and it's, what happens in the Savage Land stays in the Savage Land, but. Yeah, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like, I'm just gonna say it, Magneto strikes me as the kind of guy who likes to eat box. <laughs> He just does. He seems like that kind of guy. I can buy that, yeah. He seems like the kind of guy who wants to make sure you have a good time. But at least partly because it's sort of a power thing. Like, Oh, no. It's yeah. like, look what I did to look you. Look what I can do yes. to you. Yeah. No, it's exactly I that. buy that. I yeah. buy that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not saying it's because he has this desire to serve. It's no, he's not he a giver. It's... To, no, it's to, like, create a reaction mm -hmm. that he can witness. Yeah. Um, that's my, that's my hot take. I, I think Magneto probably, uh, is big into oral sex. So in any case, like love that. that for her because she'd never, uh, experienced that. But more importantly, like then he murders Zaladane and she's just like, oh, okay, never mind. Sorry. Oh, like, oh like, I misjudged mm, this situation yeah, terribly. No. <laughs> <laughs> you are a sexy daddy, but I need to leave this prehistoric jungle and go back to a place where I'm not having sex with a terrorist. <laughs> But uh, I, I like Carrie going, okay, but if we're to write, if we wrote Rogue and Magneto as actual human beings, but did not ignore, as most writers have since that storyline, that there is a whole arc where Rogue and Magneto are like falling in love, what, we'd, what would that look like? What would it look like if they actually had feelings for each other? Yeah. Because let's try to make it make sense. And I think it's fun. I'm glad it doesn't last very long and it doesn't, it's not the status quo that goes on very long. Yeah. Mostly for him, because I just don't think it makes a ton of sense for him. But I'm glad that we went there in such a way that the relationship now makes at least a lick of sense. Yeah. Well, it's funny because like through the 90s, whenever they're tangling with Magneto, Rogue continues to be the one who is like, wait, maybe let's give him a minute and see if we can talk him down from... And then he'll commit some new atrocity and she's like, oops, sorry, I forgot. Never mind. Sorry, I really thought I could talk him off that asteroid, but turns out that no, his, out. his plan no. all along was destroying the planet. My bad, my bad. But that's why Joseph is fun because she really wants to believe that he's actually Magneto. Joseph's so sweet. 
I like Joseph. Yeah, I was I was sad when they brought Joseph back and he was evil. I know. I just that I, I choose out. to ignore that. I choose to ignore yeah. that. Yeah, I choose to just pretend it's another clone that they also called Joseph. Yeah, like it's not it's the not same the Joseph one. You know, because what I mean? he was sweet. And part of what I mean, a lot of what I like about him is how much he likes Rogue. And but he was nice to her. Yeah, he's so I mean, sweet. I, I'm just I'm not usually that invested in like heterosexual relationships, <laughs> frankly. And the ones that I do get real invested in are the ones where the male character is just fucking obsessed with the female character in a good way, not mm-hmm. in like a creepy way, but like in a way where it's just like she is the best person in the entire world. I am going to do everything I can for the rest of my life to make her happy and help her further her goals. And I don't matter. And that was absolutely Joseph. <laughs> yeah. That was just like, he doesn't even have any memories. Like, nope. He, she's all about her. Completely. Um, what I, what yeah, I sort no. of realized, though, like, reading, rereading everything and, and looking at all of her sort of different relationships, um, Rogue is very attracted to very broken men. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which I can understand. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's she possible. She likes a project. Huh? She likes a project. Yes, it is possible that women who do this, speaking completely hypothetically, when you feel very broken yourself and you see a man who you think you can fix, you go, oh, that'll make everything better. Hypothetically. It's also, I think, a defense mechanism because if it's a man she has to have a complicated relationship because he's flawed and broken and whatever, then it doesn't enter into a sexual place immediately. So she can explore it. Like, she doesn't feel pressure to do something she can't do. You know, she has to create sort of that for herself. Because if someone's just, I mean, that's sort of the thing with Joseph is, oh, and there's that weird period briefly where she's having sex with Colossus, which I found so It's like half an issue where they make out in space. And then it's like, what's going on? Because it's like, oh, I can touch you when you're turned to stale. Which, first of all... She can't. <laughs> that's a continuity error. Because for years in the past, she has absorbed his powers while touching him in his steel form. Also, if it weren't a continuity error, wouldn't they have figured that out a long time ago? Also, also, what? Like, they don't have any no, chemistry whatsoever. None, none. I was glad that was dropped immediately. Yeah, I'm so... Well, they killed him, thank God. Well, that... And, and since he came back, they have not ever mentioned that again, which I think is for the best. But that was the thing about Joseph, right? Was like the Magneto powers can create a force field yeah. or whatever yeah. that enables him to touch her. And that's, I think, why the Joseph relationship was a little scary to her. Because he was incredibly supportive and they could have a totally normal sexual relationship. Suddenly it was real. And suddenly this is like a real thing you have to deal with rather than a melodrama that you and Remy are participating in that you don't have to actually participate in any more than you want to because he can't touch you physically. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that was important for her growth. And it enabled her to then when she and Remy get back together, have experienced a quote unquote normal relationship and therefore their relationship can become more normal. Yeah. I mean, girl needed to go have some other experiences. Yeah, it is not I good for anyone. He was absolutely right in Legacy when he was like, go get this out of your system. Yeah. I'll be here. Just do not marry the first man you bang. That's just not right. good practice. It's a bad plan. Go experience other things and then and then they find their way back to each other, which delighted me. What are some of your other favorite storylines before we segue into reader questions? So, like I said, I love a lot of things in the Carrie years, which 
went on for a long time. So they're, you know, not not everything is consistently my favorite. I loved her absolute chaotic disaster team. <laughs> <laughs> when Cyclops tells her, form your own team, form your own strike team. And she says, okay, I'm going to choose the most bonkers assembly of people you could possibly find. Um, it's sort of the lead up to Messiah Complex. Yeah. When she's got Sam and Bobby. Sure. Great. I love her having two blonde buff boys to hang around. Great. Awesome. Cable. Solid choice. Always good Experienced to have. Experienced guy. Great in a tight corner. Right. Omega Sentinel. That's a choice. Weird flex, but okay. And then Lady Mastermind. <laughs> and Mystique and Sabretooth. Okay, what, Rogue? What are you... I have developed a real love for Lady Mastermind recently. <laughs> I had skipped over more of this than I remembered, mm-hmm. like I said. And so going back over the Carrie stuff, she's so much fun. But also, I read... So I've always been, like, very down on Pixie, the character, mm. because I... To me, she was just Kitty Pride, Jubilee. It was just doing it again, but this time she's an anime character. And I was just like... <laughs> and there was that moment where, like, in the Morrison era, when like Academy X was first, like she's like, she looks about thirteen, and she's like a kid. And then Greg Land was on Uncanny, and suddenly she was like a Greg Land woman, which means she was a twenty-year-old porn star, just like very <laughs> abruptly. And they grow I, up fast in that X mansion, except yeah, when they don't. I, just, <laughs> I found that disturbing because I was like, "Is she still?" And they established she was eighteen. And I was mm-hmm. like, "Okay," but she looked about twelve, like two years ago. But anyway, I digress. I've always been very down on Pixie, and people have been trying to convince me that Pixie's actually fun. And I'm trying to have an open mind on this podcast. So I actually read the Pixie Strikes Back miniseries they did a long time ago. This is um, Catherine Eminen and Sarah Pacelli. And it's where you get Pixie's backstory that she's actually the half-sister of the two lady masterminds, the ladies' mastermind, mm. Reagan and Martinique. And that her mother is like an evil fairy and that her father is mastermind, which is a very funny idea. Yeah, that's hilarious. But what's really great about it is Sarah Pacelli draws the ladies' mastermind as essentially like sentient tits with wigs on. Like, Kind of, yeah. She, she does those, because the, the Chris Bocciolo lady mastermind outfit which he then insists on putting on Emma and a bunch of other, and Dazzler and any other female character he draws, where it's like, it's cleavage isn't even the right word for it. It's like from belt to sternum, your whole, the whole middle of your torso is not covered. And you like just sort of have your nipples covered, right? Yeah. I call it a bachelor top because he just loves to put it on women who would never wear it. But Lady Mastermind would wear it. And... Sarah Pacelli essentially makes it look even more pornographic and they're both wearing it and they just sort of walk around and she gives them like double G boobs and they're just a mess and they're just sort of like, we have a sister? What are you talking about? And she makes them just really, really funny to the point where now I am desperate for like a ladies mastermind reunion <laughs> on Krakoa. That would be funny. Yeah. I just want to see them now getting up to antics. Like she made them Paris and Nicole. It was fun. But anyway, but any, anyway so yeah. I digress. Lady Mastermind, yeah. I wouldn't invite her to be on my X-Men team. I love that disaster team <laughs> because it all goes wrong. As you know it's going to, the instant she puts right. that team together. And it's first it's Lady Mastermind betrays them all, and then Mystique shooting Rogue. <laughs> 
which yeah. is my favorite Mystique moment of Thanks, all Mom. time. She even says it because like they get into this scrap with the Marauders and, and one of the Marauders is about to shoot her and Mystique first shoots him and then is like, no one shoots my daughter. No one but can do me. that for me. <laughs> she shoots her. It's like, thanks, mom. That's great. That was really great. That's um, so good. And that that goes on into the you know the the messiah complex thing. And then on the other side of messiah complex, Carrie lets her get actual control of her powers. Yeah. For the first time, which is great because she then has to negotiate. Honestly, the consent of using her powers in a very different yeah. way than she has before. And over the rest of all the rest of Legacy, we see her getting really good at that, at learning how to take, you know, just a little bit from from the people she wants to borrow from right. when they say it's okay. And melding different powers together. And that's just so much fun to watch. But then, like you said, watching her become a mentor and a teacher. I am also a teacher. That's my other job besides writing books. I'm an educator, and so seeing Rogue become an educator was so delightful to me. She's so good at it because her empathy comes from a completely natural place. It's not mutant mm -hmm. empathy, you know? It's not... No, she's not a telepath. No. Who's, like, reading their thoughts. She's just trying... Genuinely having compassion for these kids and what they've gone through and how hard it is. And I just, oh, I love, I love watching her get to do that. She's more like Danny in that respect, Danny Moonstar. Mm. And although, but Danny can see in your head. She can see your fears. Like Rogue can't, unless she touches you, do that. And it's interesting. My understanding is that Carrie, so Legacy initially focuses on Xavier. Mm -hmm. Then it focuses yeah. on Rogue. And I believe that the third arc was supposed to focus on Moonstar. Oh, I didn't know that. The three of them as educators is an interesting but basically, like, too many events kept happening, yeah. and so it just didn't work out, and it was like, he just stuck with Rogue through the end of that run. But I think that the parallel between the way that the three of them deal with the student body would have been interesting if, if he'd been able to do that Moonstar arc. I'm a Moonstar head a little bit. I'm excited that she's getting more play again, because she was really shuffled off for a while. Because that would have been interesting at that time, because at that time, Danny had no powers. That's right, yeah. So it would have been a different... Yeah. It's, it's a decimation era, yeah. In any case, that's probably a good time to segue into reader questions. Bring them on. I will. Manuel Munoz writes, Hello, big fan of the podcast. I think it's quite good, and I've recommended it to a lot of people that are into the X-Men. You and your guests have some good insights into the characters and themes, and particularly have gotten me to read Excalibur and that fanfic X-Manson, and they were both great. Well, I told you that they were good. X-Manson is something I only recommend if you want to be really <laughs> upset. Uh, regarding Rogue, I gotta say that she's one of my favorite characters, and I highly recommend the Carrie run of her, because he seemed like a huge fan of her. So whenever people would complain there wasn't a big focus on women during the Messiah trilogy times, I would remind them that Legacy was basically a Rogue and her amazing friends book. My big question is, you have mentioned on occasion that you are not the biggest fan of marriage in comic stories, because it's essentially the final act. And this is something that has happened recently with Rogue and Remy. So having established that, you say it's a problem you see with them being married now? Because in Mr. and Mrs. X, they were a super fun, loving, sexy married couple. And I feel like they seem to be the exception of that rule. I like them as a married couple, surprisingly. And I think it's because there's the presumption that they're very into each other, sexually speaking, and Gambit is, like, devoted to her. 
Another question is regarding her power. Ever since Carrie's run, we've seen at least three instances of her finally for real this time <laughs> gaining control of her powers, and an explanation of what exactly is the reason she hasn't been able to control them before. Carrie established that her powers growth stalled because of her psyche being divided after absorbing Carol Danvers, and I think that in Rogue and Gambit, this change is being due to another psychological reason. Do you think this is a characteristic of hers that needs to continue, her not being able to be touched to control her powers, or do you say it's time to give it a rest? Personally, I liked the Carrie explanation. I'm not good at signing of letters since English is not my first language. Ecuadorian fan here. So regards, question mark, Manuel. Well, way better than my Spanish, Manuel, which is un poquito and is not very good at all. I think there's a couple beats there that are worth talking about. I've mentioned, I think, I forget which, I've, 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 I've hit this, I've banged this drum a bit on different episodes. I know I definitely talked about it in the Bobby episode, but there was another one, I think, where I touched on, I forget which one it was, but I think that I mentioned them as an exception because I think that they really do work. I've particularly been convinced of it. Mr. and Mrs. X was cute, but again, as I'm like, I'm not a Romy head, so I wasn't like following it that closely. What really has convinced me actually is the current run of Excalibur, where I find them to be very enjoyable as like a married couple. I love that sequence in the Starlight Citadel where they're bored <laughs> and Rogue is looking around and she's just like... We're in a castle. You want to rob it? Let's steal some shit. We can rob. I mean, this, that bitch just left us here in the hallway. So <laughs> that just left us here in her castle. We could rob. And Gambit is just like, ugh. Like, he's never more attracted to her <laughs> than her suggesting that they could rob this celestial palace. This magic castle. <laughs> yeah, it's like we're in a magic castle in another dimension, and we could just rob it. That would be fun. And of course, Kandra's there, which is hysterically funny, like, because he can't escape her. He cannot, no matter how many times she dies. <laughs> yeah, she's just, can't get rid of her. So I, I liked that. I think that with them, part of it is that since almost his debut, they have been, even when they've been broken up for periods, a couple or a ship, at least. They're a set. Like you said, you mentioned the miniseries, Rogue and Gambit, which was a miniseries. Like, they have been paired that way, like Cloak and Dagger, you know, for a long time. Not at their creation, the way that characters like Cloak and Dagger are, but it's one of those things like Scott and Jean, where it just feels like, yeah, if you break these characters up, people get mad about it. Which I think is unfortunate in the case of Scott and Jean, because I don't think they're good for each other. But for Rogue and Gambit, I think it works. I would like to see them having a little bit of fun on Krakoa, the way that other couples seem to be. I think that would be good for them. <laughs> I think that it would be fun for Gambit to fool around with some men. And I think that Rogue, noted gay ally, would be into it, frankly. Because again, the Gambit-Joseph-Rogue vibe in the late 90s was very much like Rogue wants them both and would be fine with them both. Like I said, lots of fanfic. Of it. Yeah, it had, there was a definite <laughs> rogue is into this vibe. Like, what if you boys just kissed? What if you kissed Joseph? He would be like, he's like, I am not making out with you. That's a real French, that's not Cajun. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> I am not making out with Magneto, the clone of Magneto. We are not going to suck. That's, that's France French. How, what, I don't even know what really what a Cajun accent sounds like. Like, I've heard it, but I can't, re I could not possibly replicate it. I'm scared to try. I, I, I can hear it. In, I can hear it in my head. It feels like it'd be culturally insensitive to like really keep 
keep at it almost because I know how badly I'm going to get it. <laughs> I can hear it in my head. And like when I read Remy, I can hear it in my head, yeah. but I'm not sure I could adequately replicate it. I think they work. I think it's fun. And I think you agree, Cass. Now I don't know if you want to, because um, obviously if you want to talk about Mr. and Mrs. X a little bit, because I know that you absolutely love them. I would absolutely love to. I, yes, I love them together. I when when Kelly Thompson wrote that Rogue and Gambit miniseries that got them back together after a long, long time, um, since they'd been together together, it was just my soul was repaired, my skin was clear, my crops were watered, all of that. <laughs> because she resolved a lot of the issues that had been dragging between them and for, for Rogue with herself for 20 years. But she also reminded us throughout that series and then continued to do through do um to do so in Mr. and Mrs. X, why they work together so well. Like their battle scenes where they are so in sync and sassing each other and <laughs> having their sass off in the middle of a battle. I love it. When they got married, I screamed. I was, the, the day that news dropped, like right before the issue actually dropped, I was working in a bookshop. I wish it hadn't. I, like, I wish that it had been a surprise in the issue. We just never get that's, that anymore. I know. That's true. But like, I wasn't, I wasn't even reading the comics really at that time. I'd read well, right, so that's fair, the yeah. mini. And so that got me to pick up X-Men, uh, what, X-Men Gold. Gold 30. Um, no comment. But I was working in a bookshop at the time. And I was just like, you know, we were between customers. It was the end of the day. So I was scrolling Twitter and the noise I made <laughs> out loud at work made my coworker come running to be like, what happened? <laughs> I thought it was great. My feeling was just, thank God it wasn't Kitty and Piotr. So the, oh, good for them. I was like, good for you, kid. I just love it that Remy stole a whole damn wedding. Absolute legendary king of thieves. <laughs> he just King of thieves. Stole the, the wedding. King. Stole the wedding. Um. It was great. And then I love them being married. Like like I sort of said earlier, I love that they are getting to be married and still be an active superhero couple. Mm-hmm. I love that they have learned to communicate with each other. And that is something that happens that we see on the page in Mr. and Mrs. X that I will forever venerate Kelly Thompson for. Because they have a moment when Rogue's powers flare again. And this can sort of lead into the, the second half of the question from, from Manuel about her powers. Her powers go out of control because of, what was it this time? It, <laughs> it was something wild. <laughs> it's always something. Well, like during the Uncanny Avengers years, it was fucking Wanda's chaos magic yeah, that we'll broke get, her again. we'll get to the Uncanny Avengers. Uh, and then... Fucking Wanda. <laughs> something happens, and, and they end up tying it to fear, and I'll, I'll loop back to that in a second. But for a minute, you can see where it could be a replay of the 90s. Mm -hmm. And their tempers flare. And there's a minute where they're not communicating well. And then they fucking pause. They take a minute and they work through the issue rather than letting it become a thing and a fight. Remy shows how well he knows her. That with her powers going nuts, she's going to try to push him away. And he's like, that's not happening anymore. We're we're married, and I'm here, and I'm right. not going away. So, what do we need to do now? What do we need to to fix this? And we see them actually have the conversation in a way that they don't when they're younger, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I love that for them. I love how Thompson sets up their dynamic as a thing that can be healthy rather than toxic going forward. And I think that Teeny Howard has picked that up really well and used that really well in Excalibur. So I really enjoy that. I, I really like them 
married. I hope they don't. If <laughs> I will, I will light things on fire if they <laughs> break them up now. It's just. I don't think they will. Uh, I think this is. I think that. I mean, certainly not long. Like I, I could see them having a moment where they're like separated, but I don't think it will ever. I don't think they'll ever like Peter Parker and Mary Jane. Yeah. You know what I mean? I hope because you're there's right. no need. There's <laughs> no need for these characters to be single. Well, and it's just it's going to be so much more interesting story-wise if they find ways for them to have conflict that aren't about the same things they've been about exactly in the same way right that haven't been about the things that's been about before um so what do you think about her control over her powers i love her having control i love the way that kelly thompson talks about it um in in Mr. and Mrs. X, and this is, I think, the last two issues. I can't remember if the conversation I'm thinking of happens explicitly in 11 or 12. Um, her powers have gone out of control again, and they they figured out they're, they're in the Mojoverse for weird reasons. Don't worry about <laughs> Don't worry it. Don't worry about right. it. Um, <laughs> but Spiral, because she needs Gambit to go steal something for her, agrees to help Rogue through a like virtual scenario thing in her own head. Mm-hmm. And Rogue ends up talking to herself and she's moving through sort of some of her past problems and thompson links her lack of control and why it has flared so badly to fear and trauma specifically to the moment um in genosha when she's sexually assaulted Mm -hmm. and it links it to a fear both of what her powers can do but also fear of not being safe without them right and Rogue has a conversation with herself that first addresses sort of what we talked about earlier about that, you know, untouchable thing and, and the protection that gives you. But then they explicitly address the trauma. And Rogue says to herself, you're trapped here in this moment. You have been for a long time. And and conscious Rogue's like, oh, okay, so if I get if I get control of this, then we'll be fine, right? No. Fear doesn't ever go away. We're going to have to keep confronting it. Every day, we're going to have to get good at controlling it. It's going to be exhausting, but now we know that that's the problem. And God, reading that um, was a sucker punch as someone who deals with mental health issues, Mm -hmm. someone who has an anxiety disorder and depression. Yeah. Because that's what it feels like. You have to fight it. Every day sometimes. And and some days it's an easy fight, and some days it's a really hard one. Knowing that that's the battle you're having makes such a goddamn difference. And I think this is, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that Rogue has meant different things to me at different phases in my life. And where I am right now is so much that I understand that part of her in a way I don't think I did before. Because I don't think it was as explicit in the writing before Thompson right. took it on. She makes it about that specific thing. The assault in Genosha is not even thought about a lot in the way that I think about it with Ilyana, for example, mm-hmm. because it's very foregrounded. And with Rogue, she kind of breezes past it because that's how she handles things. Well, and she lets Carol take over because she's like, I, oh, yeah. I can't fucking handle this. So <laughs> she lets Carol take over when she's in Genosha. And then it's brought up occasionally, but never really dealt with. And Thompson deals with it. Thompson, deals with it. Yeah. And she makes it explicit, sort of like, you've been burying this issue, which mm-hmm. sort of covers why no one's dealt with it before. Um, it's a really just, it's a really interesting 
psychological moment to me for her. Well, it's like how I said in the Gene episode, I would like Gene and Emma to talk about Mastermind yeah. at some point. Yeah. And about that and about how Emma helped him do that. I think that in particular with rape and assault in these comics, it's something you weren't allowed to really explicitly talk about back in the 80s, right? Mm -hmm. And when you did, it was sort of obliquely or it was a tragic backstory thing, but it wasn't, you know, I think that, and it's hard because you don't want the comic to become didactic. Yeah. And you also don't want, for Emma, it's tricky because they don't want to constantly revisit her villainous years because some of that is hard to reconcile. It's yeah. like the Magneto problem. I really don't like the way they've tried to retcon over the years, though, that Emma was never that bad. Like every now and then a writer will be like, oh, well, Shaw was abusing her or, oh, you know, Celine was manipulated. I, I don't like that. Mm. I, I prefer, as an Emma fan, I prefer Emma being someone who did really bad stuff and is trying to be a better person now. But I think that much like this moment for Rogue unlocks a lot of things. I think that that is the subtext of the Jean and Emma dynamic in Morrison. Mm -hmm. And Morrison knows it's there, but it's never sort of explicitly brought up. And I think a lot of that is cultural conversations about that kind of it's trauma have, have come a long yeah. way. Having female writers. And having women do it. Yeah addresses it yeah. differently. But as it relates to Rogue's powers, I like that idea going forward, that it's not going to be automatic. She's going to have to keep fighting it, but now she can. I, I wouldn't want to ever see her completely lose control again. I don't mind her having moments where it slips because that is real and healing doesn't happen just because you've decided it happens. So her current status quo, though, I think right now she doesn't have control unless she wears... An inhibitor of some kind. Am I wrong? No, she got the control back after after she was the tree lighthouse thing. <laughs> when Apocalypse, like... Oh, you're right. Right. Yeah. Okay, they, they fixed it again in Excalibur. You're they right. They did fix it I'm again in Excalibur. I'm always losing track. I'm like, when... I'm like, what's wrong? Because I remember early in Excalibur, she has a line about using an inhibitor so that she and Raimi can... Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. But then, yeah, after... The magicals. I am very excited to see where Rogue goes in Excalibur. Me I think it's going too. to go into place because I love the mutant magic concept and the thing about Rogue, who has always you mentioned Spiral. Yeah. One of my favorite because Spiral's not a mutant, and one of my favorite things in eighties Rogue stories is when Rogue touches someone to absorb their powers, except she's bitten off more than she can chew. Rogue, stop touching there. aliens. Just stop touching right. aliens. Well, it's not, and some aliens, it's fine. But there's a couple specific people where it's like they're just too powerful. Like when she tries to um, absorb Mr. Sinister in the Inferno mm. and Sinister just gets control of her body. And it's like, well, that was a mistake. Spiral is the first one to do that. When she touches Spiral, when Spiral's part of Freedom Force, um, she grows six arms, first of all, which is fun. But also... Spiral then gets control of the body and it's just like, oh, wow, this is really strong. That's fine. It's just like, Rogue, you can't, please don't touch the time dancing sorceress. That just seems like something that's not going to work out. And then in Inferno, before the sinister thing, she tries to do it to Angel, who has just been apocalypsed. Mm -hmm. And when she kisses him to try and knock him out, she sees him in her mind's eye become apocalypse and it completely overloads her. 
And I love that stuff because the 80s rogue who was so cocky and young, mm-hmm. it was just a fun thing to, because it's such a powerful ability to have that every now and then for it to be like, surprise, this person like bites back. Yeah. Well, they um, also I mean they have to put that kind of cap on her because Yeah, cuz otherwise she's too powerful. Yeah, if 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 Rogue has complete control of her powers, especially in the way that like during the extreme years when she could recall That was un- honestly that was unreadable. Like when when she was so tedious. But it was what I what I did enjoy about it was that it was making her crazy and and she couldn't handle it. Like she Yeah, she didn't enjoy it. <laughs> because if she could do that without having problems, then then we have what what I child of the 90s referred to as the genie problem um from disney's sure. aladdin i call it the phoenix problem but it's a similar problem yeah when they did when they did the tv series it's like they had to keep finding ways for genie not to be there when plot happened because if you have an all-powerful genie around then there's no plot if right. rogue could control her powers to that extent all the time she would be the most omega omega <laughs> and it would be story breaking that's why mimic is never a character who's been around that much yeah honestly because mimic is too there's too much. There's too much. You have to put some kind of cap on it, whether it is a physical limitation or a her mind just shuts down <laughs> limitation. Right. Like, Legion, speaking of legacy, is another yeah. good example. Yeah. Because yeah. Legion is a character where that was actually, there was some discourse on Twitter after Spencer referred to Magneto last episode as the most powerful Jew in fiction. And someone's like, what about Legion? Mm. And I was like, okay, Legion has more raw power than Magneto. But Legion also, the whole point of Legion is that he has like 50 dissociated identities yeah. and can't control his power because he can't, his mind is fractured into so many different mm-hmm. alters that he can't, dis- it's not, he doesn't get to choose who's in charge that yeah. day. So he can't, and the different alters have different powers. So it's a very different thing. Whereas like, you know, Magneto, while he may not have, I mean, he's also an Omega, but he it doesn't have quite as much raw breadth of power because legion can do just about anything but he has perfect control Mm -hmm. over the power he does have so um i think that very powerful i mean it's why storm's claustrophobic like you have to give them something if they're that powerful with bobby it was like you'll never reach your potential because you're in the closet and now (laughs) it's you know now they all have to find something else frankly um but yeah, I, I agree. I like Rogue having more control over it. I do. Because it feels like naturalistic character growth. It feels like something that... The other thing is, like I said earlier, it's sort of the ultimate X-Men puberty metaphor, mm-hmm. Rogue's power. And so for her to be, let's say, 28 now, and 30 now, whatever yeah. she is. I tried 30, to do the math and I couldn't make it work. <laughs> well, it's it, you know, it, it never works. So it's like, just don't worry about it. I would say she's like about 30 now. Probably, the same yeah. way that Iceman is. Yeah. Like early 30s, 30. She's a little younger than Iceman. So like she and Colossus is probably like 30. Bobby's probably like 32, 33, if we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes sense that by this point, after all that she's been through, she's got a handle on it. Because the metaphor is, like, eventually, you're an adult. Yeah. And the trauma of being a teenager is over. But you're never fully over it. And you have new different traumas. <laughs> yeah, and every now and then, your old shit flares up and you accidentally suck someone's soul out of their head by touching them. Whoops. So, 
Oops, didn't mean to. Sorry, Carol. Um, sorry, not sorry, Carol. Sorry, not sorry, Carol. Carol fucking sucks. It's interesting because I love Carol when she's Rogue's alternate personality, <laughs> much like the X-Men. I found her extremely charming, and I liked her as Ms. Marvel in the 80s. And as binary, I thought she was really cool. I... I, I actually, I liked her as Warbird in Kurt Busiek's Avengers, which I did read, uh, even though I don't read much Avengers, because I was like, oh, Carol's back. Let me see what that's all. Um, but I will say, apart from, like, the initial Kelly Sue DeConnick arc, I have, that, where she becomes Captain Marvel, mm-hmm. I have just not dug that character. She is, like, super cop of the earth and the solar system and i find her unbearable frankly <laughs> um i am reading kelly thompson's run at the moment because she's in this sort of future plot line that's kind of fun where and kelly thompson writes a good emma so that's like really all i require <laughs> from any storyline really but one thing about it is that in that future storyline you meet rogan gambit's daughter irene i know and I like that they named their daughter Irene in this timeline because that's very cute. On the other hand, we just had this great scene about how Rogue doesn't want to have children. Uh, so I was just like, ah! So if you're reading both of those, it sort of undercuts that. It, yeah, it was kind of annoying, but it was fine. Zach Rabaroff of Xavier Files, although it's about to become Comics XF, they are rebranding on the 1st of January because they have expanded beyond just the Xbooks. He's a great follow on Twitter. You should do that. He writes... Hi, Connor and guest. First of all, let me offer my sincere praise of Cerebro Podcast, the Claremont Lee X-Men number one of 2020 podcast debuts. Well, thank Ooh. you. That's very sweet. In their famed X-Men manifesto, Grant Morrison famously expressed bafflement with the character of Rogue, arguing that her cartoonishly outgoing personality made no sense given her tortured life history, and that she should simply be replaced with a more plausible goth teen character with the same powers and codename. That's never been a popular argument, and it's not one that many, if any, other writers have agreed with. But my question to you is, do you feel there's any kernel of truth inside Morrison's objection? Is Rogue's airy, winking demeanor simply a deflection of lurking sadness? The, but I can never touch you, Raimi, interpretation. Or is it a genuine, if paradoxical, expression of how she sees the world? Once again, my thanks for an always fantastic show. It's a highlight of the audio broadcast week. Well, thank you, Zach. I think that the contradiction is the point of the character, at least as she's initially presented. It is a defense mechanism, as you're saying. It is a deflection of how sad she is. As we know, I love, love Grant Morrison, but the first time I read the pitch, I was like, excuse me? Because I didn't agree with this take at all. However, I will say the writers that followed Morrison kind of did do this they didn't kill rogue but they took away the ms marvel powers and they made her a much more somber character if you look at the hecatomb arc and all of that stuff around messiah conduct she's a lot more serious she doesn't have the high-flying punchy powers and it is more like movie rogue or x-men evolution rogue in some respects but i personally think her zest for life is what makes the character fun and i think when she is too maudlin she's boring frankly that's part of why giving her some control over the power has been a satisfying thing to do because 
at a certain point, you're mining the same angst that she had when she debuted in the 80s. And it's more interesting to go somewhere else with it, I think. Cass, I, I imagine you're a very uh, anti-killing off rogue. Super, super anti-killing <laughs> yeah, off. But I um, would love your take on this question about her sort of outward presentation versus how she feels. Yeah, I mean, I it's a contradiction, but it's one that feels psychologically real to me. Yeah. That it's a natural defense to cover for the, the squishy emotional bits, especially when she is younger and doesn't know what to do with those squishy emotional bits yet. And then when it does change there sort of in the early aughts, part of it was there were a few runs where it just, like, just everyone seemed so cranky. Like, it wasn't just her. It was <laughs> lots of crankiness with all the characters. <laughs> I liked her being somewhat darker in the run-up to Messiah Complex with that chaotic disaster team as a phase for her. Right. Because she was going through some shit. Um, Yeah. The man she loved had turned into death. (laughs) Yeah. That's going to screw you up a little bit. Um, So that felt real to me, too. But I'm also glad she didn't stay there. Um, Because Mm -hmm. I do think that, yeah, her, her... her sass is so much of what I love about her. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I I particularly, I keep going back to this, but one of the things I love in the 80s is how flirtatious she is mm-hmm. and how sexual she is when she's actually a virgin who can't touch anyone. <laughs> it's very much an act mm-hmm. on some level mm-hmm. because she wants to feel mature and grown up and wants to pretend this isn't a problem. And I don't think it's a conscious act. I don't think she's performing, but I think that she goes very over the top with her sexuality because she knows there won't be any repercussions. She will never actually be forced to follow through on any of it because she can't. And so it's safe. It's a safe way for her to play with that anxiety that she has about men after what happened to Cody. And that's another thing that I think is very real for the teenage girl mindset. Mm-hmm. Like that is another thing that lots of us do for a while. And, you know, we want to feel sexy, but aren't ready to have sex yet. Like that's, that's a fake. She's a, she's a tease but yeah. it's because she will kill you if she tries to actually do something. Yeah. So it's fun. So I think that's it's more fun. of that puberty metaphor coming, coming through yes, for her. Exactly. Yeah. And, and now I now love that she and Rummy just make sexual innuendo at each other all the time. Um, I love that Thompson and Howard have both established that basically all they do when they're not on missions is have sex. Is bang. Yeah. Is lots no, of kinky I sex. <laughs> I'm super happy about it. Luke Reddick writes, Well, shucks, Cerebro, when I heard y'all were doing an episode about one of my favorite X man I got jumpier than a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. chairs. But in a good way. I'll stop that immediately. I apologize. I did a reroute of Claremont's Uncanny Run recently, and one thing that struck me was Rogue's sense of fashion. After she joins up with the team, she starts playing around with looks a lot. I know part of this is that Claremont has said he viewed the X-Men's uniforms less as costumes and more as clothes that should evolve over time. But in Rogue's case, it feels like there's a sense of experimentation to it. Ponchos, coveralls, sometimes edgy punk looks, slick back hair, mullets, mohawks. Then after that, she hits the iconic Jim Lee look and stays there for a long time, to the point that to a lot of people, it is the Rogue look. How do you and your guests feel about this? Is it a mirror of her arc as a character, simply a matter of different art styles, or a mix of both? Do you have a favorite look for Rogue? What are your thoughts, Cass? I, I also love the, the classic Jim Lee look, but I think it's hilarious that during that era, anytime she's in civvies, it's like, oh, that girl is from the rural South. She is wearing those Daisy Dukes, and <laughs> it's just, it's 
very authentic and not mm-hmm. a great look, but any Southern girl who was alive <laughs> in 1993 and tries to claim she didn't have those is probably lying to you. Um, I, I love her look now. I like that the Excalibur look is sort of an update of yeah. the Lee look. It has a lot of the same elements, but it feels more modern, and I like that a lot. Um, I like the bomber jacket that yeah. they, that she closes yeah. over it rather than just having it be open like it was in the 90s. I think it's more contemporary. Yeah. So I don't love the Jim Lee look. And like I think part of my rogue issue is that I associate that look with the 90s characterization that I wasn't crazy about. Mm-hmm. And it is the look that they constantly return her to. And I feel like when she returns to the look, a lot of the time she returns to that characterization. She hasn't right now no that definitely happened in the early aughts though when she sort of regresses a lot she's back in Mm -hmm. in that one yeah and part of it for me this is my issue with a lot of the jim lee costumes from that 90s really iconic run that because it was so successful became the look that most of those characters were recognized in still to this day what Claremont did, as you note, was rather than costumes, particularly in the 80s, the X-Men would wear contemporary fashions that would change over the years as fashion actually changed. But every character had essentially a color scheme and had an identifiable color or two colors that sort of were associated with the character and all of their looks. And usually there would be an insignia or a symbol sometimes like Dazzler always wore blue and had that yellow starburst somewhere on her outfit. And so you're like, that's Dazzler. Psylocke always wore purple and pink. Storm always wore black. And Rogue always wore green. There is green in the Jim Lee costume, but it's more yellow. Yeah. And it's just never quite fit to me. And part of what I really like about the Excalibur look is that sometimes it is sort of the Jim Lee look, but green. Yeah. Other times, yellow. It depends on the issue, but like when she absorbs Apocalypse that one time in Excalibur, like it's fully like green and it looks great. I don't love the initial like roller derby haircut. <laughs> yeah. Rogue look from when she's in the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Not my favorite. But I think that the 80s looks, I, I really love the way in the 80s that she basically wears a black bodysuit that covers her whole body because she doesn't want to accidentally touch anyone and then green accessories or green things on top of it layers like she'll wear an off-the-shoulder t-shirt over it and a belt that's silver and green boots and gloves or i really love the look from the late 80s that is a black, full black bodysuit, but then she has like a green one piece swimsuit over it. Oh, yeah, and then yeah. tall gloves and tall boots in green. I think that look is really chic. It's so simple, too. It's like a very simple costume for a superhero, but it really works. I think my favorite rogue look, though, is actually from the beginning of the carry run. The one where she's kind of cloaked. It's almost inspired by the look from the movie with the hood. Yeah, but the green and white hood. Yeah. But it's green and white. It evokes her brotherhood costume from when she was first introduced. It's funny because it looks more like a Psylocke costume almost, like an 80s Psylocke Mm. costume or a Storm costume. Like it's elegant in a way that you don't expect Rogue to be, (laughs) but she can throw that cloak and hood off and like get down to brass tacks if she needs to and she's always like been into layering like that 
I actually, the one non-green look that I really like is the one from the 80s. Her hair is terrible in this look, but I like the outfit where it's this orange poncho that she pulls over the black oh, yeah. bodysuit and she like cinches it with a green belt. I think that looks really cute. It's so dated that she could never wear it now. But, you know, I, I, I just like, I like her sense of play. And I do think that it's all part of the look, don't touch aspect of the character, right? She always wants to look her best. She always wants men to look at her, mm-hmm. honestly. And so she keeps up with fashion trends. Like that is part of it. Like she wants to be appreciated in part because she's so fucked up about not being able to touch anyone. <laughs> like, you know, I also find it hilarious that in legacy, when she has control of her powers, she immediately begins wearing a shirt that is open like to her navel. <laughs> I was going to say, I like that one too. It's like it basically over the course of legacy, she switches from the, sort of because in the initial part like you said she's in a darker place Mm -hmm. and she's sort of more covered up because she's even more angsty about touching people right so it's like here i am literally in a hooded cloak and then as she gets control and legacy goes on she gets nakeder and nakeder in a way that she never has been before because she's always been fully covered even if it was the sleeves come up the boobs come out it's great she has that like magical flying scarf that (laughs) The scarf is super cute. The gravity-defying scarf. And I love the the X that her cleavage just sort of splits down the middle. It's very rogue. It feels like a return to 80s rogue, who, like I said, was very sexually provocative, sort of on purpose, because it made her feel more in control of a very uncontrollable situation. But it's an adult version of her who has control and is like, well, now I can dress pretty because I like it. You know, not to make a point. Like, it's just sort of... I can stop thinking constantly about how much skin I'm showing and just be comfortable however I want to be and look cute however I want to. And I think that that was a satisfying character beat for her. I would prefer to see a return to a look more like those, but I understand that the Jim Lee look is the really famous one. And in this new era, I understand that they are returning to a lot of iconic looks because they want to get people back on board who fell off the X-Men during all the years that the X-Men was the redheaded stepchild of Marvel Comics. So uh, I get it, but I would like to see her in green again and in something more like the legacy look, personally. Pedro writes, after being an Avenger and marrying Gambit, how do you guys feel about Rogue's place in the X-Men currently? Do you think she'd be 100% behind Krakoa all the time? Or would she join the Avengers if given a chance to go back to straightforward superheroing? What I mean is, has her purpose changed? Where is Rogue as a character going into the 20s? So Cass is, you can't see this, but the minute I said the word Avenger, <laughs> Cass's whole body like seized up and she did this thing with her hand as though I had physically like electrocuted her through her screen and laptop and she had to recoil from the it was very like oops rogue touched someone by accident (laughs) and now they're in a state of shock um so i'm gonna guess that much like me you didn't care for rick remender's uncanny avengers i did not (laughs) why don't we talk about it let's talk about it you just go ahead yeah. and I'll I'll catch up with you after you get out all of whatever it is you're feeling right now. This was really where I fell off reading mm-hmm. the comics. Um, I made it through Decimation and I wasn't happy about it, but Rogue 
kept getting good storylines because Mike yes. Carey really seemed to like her. Mm-hmm. Making her an Avenger was a weird choice. Her name is Rogue. She's not <laughs> She's not someone who's there enforcing, you know, Goody Two-Shoes' idea of what she is... She debuts as a terrorist who attacks the Avengers. Yeah. That's like her whole thing. And I mean, they might get over that, I guess, but... It I guess, didn't. but if I were Carol, I wouldn't. And I'm not even, I'm not even, like, oh, and Carol clearly for Carol, per se. doesn't, but, like, yeah. when, when when Rogue does show up for a hot couple of epi- uh, issues, um, at some point, like, they sort of have reached some sort of okayness with each other. But, like, in Carol's head, she's still blaming Rogue for a thing Rogue did when Rogue was 17. Right. So there's that. And it's just, it just felt so weird. She felt like a completely different character in those years. She had regressed to being a 17-year-old with a bad attitude. She was antagonistic towards Wanda for reasons that I don't blame her for, but didn't make sense with the rogue we had just left off at the end of Legacy. Oh, see, I that I disagree on. I thought that her antagonism toward Wanda was very in character. My issue with it was that it felt like we were supposed to think Rogue was wrong. Well, that too. I mean, and it's, uh, I mean, Wanda is <laughs> constantly referring to Rogue as my father's whore, which, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, that's... I'd punch a bitch too. <laughs> like, well, it's just, I mean, that really, uh, much like Civil War Two did pretty irreparable damage to Carol that they're still trying to climb out of. I think that Uncanny Avengers, I said this last episode, really just. I find Wanda almost intolerable because of that. And book. like, I had almost no engagement with Wanda before that. Right, because I'm not an Avengers yeah, person. Me so it's like, I only really interacted with Wanda when she was like Magneto adjacent. Yeah. Right? I, you know, I had read some of the 80s Avengers stuff. I had read like Vision, Scarlet Witch, and that stuff, but like Magneto's in that. You know what I mean? Like, it was usually X Men related or like because Quicksilver was on X Factor or whatever. And listen, I mean, like, Uncanny Avengers, the remainder Uncanny Avengers, the Duggan run is fun, Zub's run is fun, but like the premise of Uncanny Avengers itself is so objectionable to me. Yeah, I just <laughs> that I, you know, I just didn't buy it. I also just like it didn't make sense to me. And I know that like they deal with this on the page a little bit, which accidentally kills the Grim Reaper on national television. <laughs> <Whoops>. But <laughs> if I'm Captain America and I'm choosing my unity squad which is the intention of that team right it's like human mutant relations Mm -hmm. havoc makes perfect sense i don't like how havoc's characterized in that story but havoc has always been someone willing to work for the government doesn't like being a mutant is into assimilation that's his character flaw on some level so that made sense to me the problem is remember so it is a good thing rather than a character flaw which is (laughs) and as a havoc fan that's like totally his big character flaw wolverine he's been an avenger for a while now yeah sure makes sense also we were still in peak Wolverine at that time. Yeah. So, you know. But Rogue? It didn't make any sense. Storm is married to Black Panther. Well, I guess they're divorced by that point. Or, or I can't Wolverine, remember. I don't know. Uh, who cares? I hated that shit. No disrespect intended to the Black Panther himself. I just, I don't like that couple. No, but it, like, it honestly felt like Remender just, he needed somebody to go after Wanda and just sort of picked Rogue or was handed Rogue. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't understand why it would be Rogue, because I think there's a very specific kind of X-Man who is willing to become an Avenger. And it just does not and strike me as her. <laughs> no, never. I completely, like, Beast, yeah, absolutely. 
Havoc, absolutely. Polaris would have made sense to me. Actually, if you really wanted someone to be on that team to come for Wanda, mm. why not have her sister, who she doesn't really know, come in? And Polaris has been somewhat radicalized since 90s X-Factor because she became more aligned with Magneto. Mm -hmm. And that would be interesting. You tap Polaris with Havoc because they have a history together and they both worked for the government in X-Factor in the 90s. But Polaris is a little more out there and extreme and is kind of like, no, fuck all these people. But I think that like Peter David had just claimed Polaris. Yeah, I mean, I have no idea what was happening at that level. Just as a reader. She was in like issue 5000 of X-Factor Investigations at that (laughs) point, I think. So, but yeah, I mean, but I'm just trying to think of like, I mean, Storm, like I said, would have made more sense. Even Kitty. Yeah, because Kitty sort of tried to mainstream for a while. and Yeah, Kitty worked for S.H.I.E.L.D. for a minute. Like, or, you know, I I just, I don't know. There's just no way that it's broke. No. It doesn't work for me. No, Rogue is the girl who decides to rob a palace with her husband (laughs) because it's there. (laughs) Let's rob. It'll be fun. Or like, you know, Rogue is the one who thrived most in the Outback period yeah because she was completely liberated from like because the world believed she was dead all of the expectation and all of the bad shit that she did it like wasn't it didn't matter anymore and she was free and so she was like i'm an outlaw now here in the outback and i'm gonna fly around i'm gonna roller skate i'm gonna steal your man like she you know that was that was the vibe you know dazzler that would have been good She's a famous pop star. Yeah. Like, and like, just, there are so many people who would make Rogue is known to the general public only as a terrorist. <laughs> That's why it's like a weird joke. And, and so it also felt like from a narrative standpoint that there needed to be a, a character to to screw things up, to do right. bad things in yeah. the public eye, and then get shit on and for it. And to not trust Wanda and therefore cause a bad future timeline yeah. by killing Wanda. It's like, uh, why would anyone trust Wanda? <laughs> Especially a mutant! Yeah, notably, she did a genocide, like, and in the in the sliding time scale, it was like six months ago. Yeah. So there's that, first of all. Also, she has spent the entire book, A, yeah, calling Rogue her father's whore. B, talking about how mutants have no intrinsic value to their, like, and no culture. Yeah. And that- Why would it matter if they all disappeared? <laughs> and that the X-Men should get off the cross because their martyr act is exhausting. And- is just an absolutely despicable character. But the thing that's so weird is it feels like, again, much like with Havoc's terrible M-word speech that has gotten... I mean, I don't need to go God. into it because it, it plenty of people have. But Remender got real defensive about that because clearly he agreed. And it seemed to me like he agreed with Wanda. It seems to me like he agreed with Jan, the Wasp, mm-hmm. when she creates her mutant-inspired fashion line. Because like, the... The thing that's fascinating about the Remender Uncanny Avengers is that Wanda and Havoc and Jan are all doing things that are fascinating, metaphorical, evil things to do. Mm -hmm. Except that the book seems to think that they're the ones doing the right thing and that Rogue and the people who agree with Rogue are being unreasonable. And it made me feel insane. It it was exhausting. Just absolutely exhausting. (laughs) I, I felt, it was like, I felt very much like gaslight like my husband is trying to convince me this comic is good so that i'll go insane like it really (laughs) i I fully felt literally like the movie gaslight it felt like that to me because i was just like this book is trying to tell me that these people are 
Right. And so for me, that's like the flawed premise to begin with. Like the X-Men can never unify with the Avengers. Their intrinsic mission is not compatible. And the problem with taking Rogue from a book like Legacy, where she is so entrenched in the mutant question and in mutant culture and putting her in the Avengers is that suddenly Rogue's not involved in mutant stuff for ages. I know. I mean, years and years. Because she's doing dumb Avengers shit. I don't care about I mean, okay, fine. I guess the Apocalypse twins show up, but frankly, don't worry about it. It's not for me. No. Also, like, I don't say, I love Jerry, but the Deadpool Rogue thing is... It makes a tiny bit of sense to me in the rogue is attracted to very broken <laughs> men. No, it's like I, I that's why i'm like i, I wasn't trying i wasn't saying it's bad because it's not like i just preface with i love jerry but it was it's just on its face like if you told me that without my reading it i was just like that's the most insane thing I've ever that was how i found out life. i found out on tumblr because Same. i wasn't reading I, I wasn't i had stopped reading during the remainder period right so I picked it up later and I, they were just like rogues hooking up with Deadpool. And I was like, I want to jump out of building right now. But <laughs> then I actually read it. and I was like, oh, this is funny. It, it, it gets to that point and it, it, it's, yeah, it was funny. And then he crashes their, he, then he crashes their honeymoon, which was also funny. So also funny. Right. Like I'm like that, um, you know, no, once I read it, I was like, oh, this is fine. I'll allow it for but, that. But it was not, but, but it had been such a, it had been such a rough road for Rogue that when I heard about that, I was just like, are you fucking kidding me? And then I read it and I was like, oh, this is funny. Actually. I had the exact same, exact same track. Uh. <laughs> but what, what you said there about the um, sort of that, the, the narrative dissonance in, in thinking that you were being told something was right when it was wrong, that I think goes to the other part of, of the listener question about where she is now. And is it is it time? To, can we talk about Krakoa? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I love Krakoa as a narrative concept. And I hope they stick with it and explore it for many, many years to come. Same. As I want 10 years of Hickman. I me want too. 10 years of Krakoa. Me at too. least. I want to be getting the AARP catalog by the time someone retcons out Krakoa. Yes, I'm with you. I'm with you. But as a That's 18 years from now if you're counting. Or oh 17. <laughs> Shit. As a geopolitical entity, however, I am so deeply suspicious of it. Um, oh, as you should be. As we yeah. should be. And that's what I mean, is that, like, the narrative is telling us that we should be suspicious and that there are weird tensions, as opposed to the narrative telling us, no, everything's fine. <laughs> Believe everything on face value, which was how the, the remainder years felt. No, Krakoa feels like there's a very weird undercurrent from the beginning. And yes, they're doing a great thing, and it's miraculous, but it's also a little bit of a cult. There's darker threads, yeah. And, and, and the... You and I have talked about this a little bit before. The procreation imperative is disturbing. Bothers me yeah. deeply. And I've seen different takes on it that are like, oh, it doesn't really mean this. And I'm like, ooh, but how easily could it slide into a very bad place? Well, and I right. like that Rogue is aware of that. Mm -hmm. She has a fucking nightmare about Beast experimenting on her <laughs> and her yeah. womb. Yeah. And so I really love that she is one of the people that we see questioning Krakoa a little bit. Remy also does, because Remy's not totally on board with the amnesty for apocalypse and <laughs> things like that. Right. And notably. And then when you put all that together with Mystique. Right. Being on the Quiet Council. Being on the Quiet Council, but also Mystique knows she's going to burn this thing down someday. Like, Oh, well, yeah, yeah. I am super interested in where all of those things threads could go um 
I'm I'm excited for it. I think where I get annoyed is there is a strain of discourse that sort of keeps arguing that Krakoa is like fundamentally like this evil fascist project. The X Men are bad guys now. I just don't agree. I don't agree. At all. I also don't agree that it's a perfect utopia no, safe space and, no. and i've seen that argument as well i think it's in the middle and there's a weird tension and i think krakowin law and culture has probably not found its level yet right because it's new i think that it's a good project that unfortunately has flawed architects as all nations yes. do. right so i think that we are supposed to question certain things i think that kurt suggests make more mutants mostly as like he's kidding a little bit <laughs> But on the other hand, it's a parallel. You know, Spencer and I have talked in both of his episodes about the ways that Krakoa does and does not map onto the state of Israel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And mostly it doesn't. But they are playing with certain illusions, clearly. And one of those things is after the Holocaust, there was a certain cultural imperative in Jewish thought. We need to have more babies Mm -hmm. because otherwise we're going to disappear. And for the mutants who were eradicated more thoroughly than anyone who was subjected to the Holocaust between 16 million in Genosha, which is an unfathomable number. And then the decimation taking them from the 300,000 or so that were left to less than 200. You completely can see why that would be something they're worried about doing. But it's very easy for that to become a regimented, problematic directive. I feel like especially when Mr. Sinister is on your council. like Right, who's like a eugenicist, literal Nazi. <sighs> One of my favorite episodes of Battlestar Galactica, which is a show that I really, really love, is an episode in season two called The Captain's Hand, where President Roslin is running for re-election against Gaius Baltar. And... While we, the viewer, know that Gaius Baltar is bad news, he's very popular with the general public. So in order to shore up her re-election chances, Raza makes a deal with the delegation from the planet Geminon, which is a fundamentalist religious planet, and she agrees to ban abortion Mm. in the fleet. It's a crisis that she has throughout the episode. She's very conflicted about it because... She built her political career in part on protecting a woman's right to choose. But now there are only like 50,000 human beings left and they are being hunted. And she thinks about it and she asks the doctor, like, with our current birth rate, how long will the species last? And she eventually makes essentially this devil's bargain going against what she believes because she thinks, all right, First of all, I need to be reelected because this guy who is my rival candidate is evil, (laughs) which she knows to be true, or at least strongly suspects to be true due to her supernatural powers. Great show if you haven't watched it. This isn't a big spoiler, really. This is just a cool episode. But it's interesting. At the end of the episode, she outlaws abortion, but the girl who was the test case, the girl who escaped from Geminon to get an abortion she makes sure that girl gets an abortion before she's returned to Geminon. And the Geminese representative is really pissed. And she's like, I gave you your pound of flesh. We're done talking. Hmm. And so it's very clear, like, all right, I'm going to outlaw abortion because I think we do need to be having more children. 
but I can't look this girl in the face and tell her that she can't have an abortion. It's a fast. Laura Roslin is one of the most fascinating characters in television history to me, in part because, I mean, first of all, Mary McDonnell is an unparalleled level of actor. I mean, she's just incredible. But also, it is unusual for a woman to be given the opportunity to make decisions like that in fiction and to make choices like that that are really morally fucked up and complicated. And I love the contradiction of her making the gesture while also it being clear that she's going to look the other way because personally she thinks abortion is good. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I I love that episode. If you haven't watched Battlestar Galactica, but you are interested in some of the sociopolitical themes that my guests and I talk about on this podcast sometimes, that is a great show. Goes a little awry in season four in places, but overall I think it is a good watch. Um, But I think I see the Krakoa Imperium as kind of like that. It's like, in a general sense, yes, we absolutely do need to make more mutants because, I mean, now Arako also, this is one thing that's interesting. Arako has the end of Ten of Swords with this influx of a mutant population from another dimension has made that a lot less urgent than it was. But I think that as it's suggested on Krakoa, it's like, we would love if you would, we are encouraging you to have children, be fruitful and multiply. But it's not like every woman on this <laughs> island is required to birth three mutant children. Like, But if someone like Sinister got control of the island. It could go there. Exactly. And, and I love, I love that they're playing with those tensions. Exactly. Me too. I love it's it as like, a narrative. Because the best laid plans, right, yeah. of mice and men getting after et etc., etc. There is no way to build a nation without putting certain apparatuses into place that could be exploited by bad people. I mean, in the most recent issue of X-Force, Xavier allows X-Force to overrule the five on a resurrection question, mm. which means that Krakoa is to some extent a police state. I have had a lot of questions about the resurrection protocols and like who decides what order and if things can be, yeah, yeah like I've had questions about right. that. So, oh yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and I mean, in the most recent issue of New Mutants, little Gabby, who I now stand, <laughs> brings up the fact that they haven't resurrected Madeline Pryor or Evan Sabiner because they're clones and magic's like, oh, that's not why. And I said, yes, it is. Like now you're all coming up with different reasons why you wouldn't bring Madeline back, like, which means that you know you did something wrong yep. and you're justifying it to different people in different ways, which is the hallmark of deceptive leadership, right? Yeah. And so to bring it sort of back to like what the reader question, like I, I don't see her. I would not want to see her go rejoin the Avengers if Krakoa Ever. goes weird. No, don't want to see it. <laughs> I could certainly see her as part of a different faction. On Krakoa. Yes. If Krakoa has a schism, yeah. I could see her go. I mean, we've already seen Jean and Scott breaking away a little bit from the council. I could see Rogue being definitely more that kind of person. I'm interested to see where Excalibur as a group goes from here, mm-hmm. because I think that they are being set up as sort of the experts on Otherworld, which is a very different context yeah. from Krakoa. And I think that we may see them. We've already seen Richter kind of delving into a new mindset. And I think that the other characters may similarly find their horizons expanded by the limitless potential of other worlds. Mm. I'm interested to see where they all go. Because I could definitely see Rogue being something of a gadfly to the council if they do things that she doesn't agree with. Yeah. 
And I would like that. I think she is at her best when she's causing trouble. (laughs) Yes, I agree. (laughs) In Legacy, part of what's fun is that she's pretty content on Utopia for the most part. So she's not causing a lot of trouble. And it's weird that it's good because usually I want her to be just like causing a fuss. But I like that she's like, well, I'm not feeling the need to cause a fuss right now. So what do I want to do when I'm happy? Because <laughs> I've never been happy. This is a strange That's feeling. How yeah. do I negotiate this? And then the schism happens and she does cause trouble again. A lot of it, actually, because she goes with Wolverine. But she doesn't listen to Wolverine because she thinks she knows better than Wolverine, which, frankly, she does. She does. If you look at that whole period of the X-Men, because yeah. Wolverine, not a great headmaster, in no. my opinion. So, yeah, I think that sort of covers that. I do not want Rogue to ever be an Avenger again. I'm interested to see where Excalibur goes. I have a lot of faith in Teenie Howard, obviously. I'm a little biased on that one, but I think that she really loves that character, and I think that we're going to see interesting stuff happen by the time you're listening to this Excalibur 16 will have come out and I think that it will probably be a bit of a showcase for Rogue given that Betsy is out of commission at the moment Garrett Rooney writes hi Connor thanks for including my previous question about Jean I really enjoyed the answers from both you and your guests just one quick question about Rogue due to the time I started reading X-Men comics right around when Claremont left Rogue was a character whose backstory I saw referenced long before I actually read it I'd always assumed she had a long history working as a terrorist alongside Mystique and Destiny. But on the page, she actually jumps from bad guy to good guy remarkably quickly. How do you feel about the X-Men's history of turning antagonists into allies or even protagonists? Do you think it works as well for someone like Rogue, where little time is actually spent establishing them before they make the switch, as compared to the various longtime X-Men foes who are now working alongside them in Krakoa? Thanks, Garrett. So Rogue definitely makes the jump pretty quick. But I think that that was her function, right? Honestly, she's a take two at Pietro and Wanda, but she's more, it's more compellingly done (laughs) because uh, it just is because she loves Mystique and Destiny, whereas Pietro and Wanda did not love Magneto. So them defecting was like, yeah, of course they would. I think it really works for Rogue in part because the family connection there means that even though she isn't with the Brotherhood for very long, there's always a tie that's really profound for her. And the Carol Danvers incident is so unforgivable to so many other characters that she kind of has this evil mutant scarlet letter on her that she can't get rid of. You know, Wolverine won't trust her until she almost dies saving Mariko. Storm objects to her joining the act. Like everyone, because they're all friends with Carol. And the Avengers certainly are not. I mean, this is again why Uncanny Avengers just didn't really work for me in particular. In terms of your general question, like how do you feel about the antagonist to ally or antagonist to protagonist thing? I think that's one of the things X-Men does best. And I think that it's a particularly good franchise to do it in because the thing about the X-Men and most of their foes is that what they differ on is philosophy more than experience, right? Or more, more than goals. Like they all want to liberate mutants essentially, but they see different ways of going about it as the right way to go. 
Magneto is the Ur example, obviously, of one where it was done really well in the 80s. I think Emma Frost is also an enormously successful character from 1980 through to the present, like with a couple hiccups. But you feel it very naturally, like, oh, this is a woman who's not unreasonable. She just has approached this a different way and done some bad stuff. But she's redeemable because her core motivation is to help her minority group that she shares with the heroes. And Krakoa is taking that to its logical extreme, right? So it's like now we have to accept if Krakoa is for all mutants, then the most evil mutants that we've ever met, the ones who've committed the most atrocities, I would say the big three that I usually point to are Apocalypse, Sinister, and Selene. The three of them are real bad. They have done really, really bad things. The Apocalypse arc over the last two years is the best apocalypse story ever told, though, because Hickman and Howard took a full year and a half, two years, to fully recontextualize Apocalypse's worldview in a way that does not feel... It it is a retcon, but it doesn't feel inconsistent with what we've previously read about the character. And given that Krakoa is, on some level, what he had sought to achieve, the fact that he would moderate his behavior and change his approach makes a lot of sense. Sinister is more difficult for me, but I think we're also supposed to feel that way. I think the fact that Sinister is on the council is supposed to bother the hell out of us. <laughs> and it's clear that he isn't really on board. If you look at Hellions, he's doing all kinds of shit behind their back. So I think that's a plot, and Sinister will be in an antagonistic role again, eventually. Celine, they haven't done much with yet, I think because Tanahasi Coates was using her in Captain America in a way that was a little confusing timeline-wise, but that storyline's over, and hopefully we're just not going to acknowledge it, no disrespect to Mr. Coates. I just don't want Celine to get thrown in the pit with Sabretooth, so I'm hoping that we'll just kind of hand wave it. Celine is real evil. Celine has lived for 17,000 years and has killed a lot of people. Um, but if you give Celine what she wants, which is paradise and the ability to feed as much as she'd like, then maybe she doesn't feel the need to kill people. I think that's interesting. And I think that because, again, there is a bond that all of these people share, there is something to their lives that links them together. Celine is a character that I think, like Apocalypse, you could do an interesting recontextualization with. Because the thing about Celine is, she was alone from birth, her power is inherently violent, and she needs to use it to survive. And over time, how could you not become a monster? Mm-hmm. It's the vampire problem, right? Yeah. I mean, she is a vampire, you know, in every mythic sense. The moral thing to do, obviously, would be to let yourself die. But lots of people just aren't that altruistic. And certainly she's not. But I would love to, I don't know, I have a lot of thoughts about Celine. I would love an opportunity to write that character. Because I think there's a lot you could do to explain her, not to justify her. Because again, like, the current plots of Apocalypse don't excuse the things Apocalypse did. But we understand why he did them now. Yeah. And for him... The amnesty really makes sense because he no longer has a reason to villain. Right. He has achieved what he was villaining for. And I think that right. 
is the big test of Kriko and Amnesty. Which of yeah. these mutants were evil, were doing villainous things because of the pressures they were feeling as a result of being mutants, because of fears they felt as a result of being mutants, and which of them are just inherently terrible people, <laughs> as I feel Sinister is. <laughs> yeah, or, or empath. I mean, I think that the Hellions book is really interesting because you have characters like Nanny and the Orphan Maker who are just broken, and then you have characters like Empath where it's like, he's a psychopath. He's a sadist. He wants to hurt people. He enjoys doing it. You can't rehabilitate this person. Mm -hmm. It's not possible. What do you do with that person? And in the case of Sabretooth, you throw him in the pit. In the pit! (laughs) And we're supposed to find that, I think, a little alarming, because it is. But on the other hand, it's like, okay, if this project is going to work, though, everyone has to opt in. Yeah. Because otherwise, they are right about us, and we're just giving everyone amnesty. And If we're going to give you amnesty, you have to not do evil things. That's sort of how it works, because otherwise you're making us all look bad. And it is a group effort, you know? (laughs) So yeah, I I think that it's a good thing that happens in the story a lot. There are other superhero books where I find it less natural. I feel like in particular, Batman villains and Spider-Man villains often become good over time. And sometimes it super makes sense. And other times I'm just kind of like, okay, this character was just popular. You know, whereas with the X-Men, it it feels like there's always a common ground that they can find, yeah. even with the most objectionable characters. Sinister is a tough one. And I think that that's why the book is not really asking us to think Sinister has reformed. Yeah. Because we're just not going to buy it. To speak to Rogue in general, I also think that, like, for her, villaining wasn't something she deeply wanted to do in her heart. It was just the family business. <laughs> Yeah, it was what she it was what her mom taught her her mom and her other mom taught her was the right to thing do, to do. So she did it. But she is she's inherently a good person. She is an em- empathetic person. She is compassionate. So she has I think those traits make her easier to, you know, to have rehabilitated even though that man people continue to call her the reformed villainous rogue for a really long time. Kane Farnell writes, Hi, Connor and guest. I love your podcast. I've been looking forward to each episode with great anticipation throughout these recent weeks of quarantine. As someone who has loved the X-Men, I find the information and perspective you and your guests add to certain narratives, as well as the Cerebro character files, incredibly informative, especially on the characters I'm not as familiar with. Rogue is one of my all-time favorite characters in the mutant world. She literally means so much to me, and I was so glad to find you were doing a Rogue episode. My question is in regards to a rumor I had heard about Rogue's race. I heard that she was originally intended to be depicted as a woman of color from the South, and the distinctive white streak in her hair that we all know her for was meant to be a form of poliosis, a genetic trait not common, but allegedly found mainly in people of color, which causes a melanin deficiency or lack of pigment in the hair or skin. Apparently this was all intended, but there was alleged miscommunication with the notes to the artist, and he made her a white woman. I was wondering if you'd ever heard such a rumor, or if you know this to be in fact true. And if so, do you think that if and when she's introduced to the MCU, they should rectify this, since it seems to be too late for her to be changed so drastically in the comics? Thanks again for doing what you're doing. Cerebro is by far one of my favorite podcasts to listen to, and I hope to learn more about some of the less familiar characters in the future. All the best. Thank you for writing in. I have heard this rumor also. I don't think it's true. I think this is an urban legend. I could be super wrong, but I think people are confusing Rogue in this case with Dazzler, who was supposed to be black. Dazzler was pitched, modeled after Grace Jones, and Marvel, it's just a bizarre random story, Marvel was trying to launch Dazzler as a solo hero. 
much like a lot of Claremont X-Men characters, like Carol Danvers, like Rogue, who was a Ms. Marvel villain, Dazzler wound up folded into the X-Men because her solo title failed. And similarly, Longshot, who became her love interest, was folded into the X-Men because he was an unrelated character that Anna Senti had done a miniseries about with Art Adams. My understanding is Claremont was hoping that Nesenti would get to do more stories with Longshot, so he brought Longshot into the X-Men to keep him around for a while and like build up more fans for him so that Nesenti and Adams could maybe do another Longshot story or an ongoing or something. In Dazzler's case, Marvel was trying to do something new. They wanted to do kind of a multimedia thing. It's sort of closer to what they're doing now. They wanted Dazzler to be a property that could then be adapted for other things, like for television, or they could do records or things. And they wanted to partner specifically with the actress Bo Derek. And it's funny because there's a lot of discourse about Bo Derek and like race because famously in the movie 10, she wears cornrows and a lot of people think of them as Bo Derek braids, but obviously black women had that hairstyle before Bo Derek. But yeah, so it was supposed to be this deal with Bo Derek for like a multimedia enterprise centered around Dazzler. So they redesigned her as a white woman with long blonde hair. But the design was otherwise identical to the original design where she was a black woman with close cropped hair like Grace Jones. Which makes more sense, frankly, because like, you know, Grace Jones was the queen of the gay disco. I mean, in terms of the character they were trying to create, it made more sense. I I think that would have been really cool because, as has been pointed out by many people, Storm was the prominent black woman character, but she has very racially ambiguous features. She has long, platinum, white, blonde, straight hair. And so a Black woman character in the X-Men, who looked more like an actual Black woman would in real life, would have been interesting at the time. And the Bo Derek thing completely fell through, by the way. So we just ended up with Dazzler looking the way she does, even though the partnership never got finalized. And I love Dazzler, and I'm not saying, like, you know, fie on Dazzler. And listen, there were white disco singers. I mean, it's kind of an Andrea True Connection vibe instead of a Grace Jones vibe. The thing about Dazzler is they introduced her as disco was on its way out. Mm -hmm. So she was, like, already kind of an outdated character when she came in. And they redesigned her into, like, a Pat Benatar character, which made a lot more sense. That's, That's how I think of Dazzler, yeah. But then into the 90s and aughts, she kind of became Kylie Minogue, which I think also really works but anyway long story short i think that that's where this urban legend comes from because dazzler's race was changed in the design stage i just don't think given how control freaky claremont was about certain art things and character designs and things like that i just don't buy the idea that like a colorist could have made this mistake Mm. and it would have been allowed to just stand like i don't Especially because Claremont was very into diversifying the cast. I mean, he brought Misty Knight in as Jean's roommate. He brought Stevie Hunter in to be the teacher for the New Mutants. Like, he was interested in adding Black characters. And I think that if Rogue was supposed to be Black, he would have pushed for it. I think it's just supposed to be a Malin streak. I don't think it's supposed to necessarily, like, be poliosis. That said, all of this to say, I think it would be really interesting to cast Rogue Black in the movies. Because you're absolutely right that the South, in terms of the mutant metaphor, there would be something really interesting about that. Especially if you are doing the romance with her and Gambit, if Gambit is still a white man, then there's the whole like, oh, I can't touch him initially. It becomes uh, about sort of interracial 
romance in the South, which I think could be really interesting. She's from Mississippi. I mean, there's just a lot of history there. I think it would be a really interesting thing to do. And you're right that there are Black women with streaks like that because of poiosis. So I think it would be cool. I would be all for that. I would be all for casting Rogue as a Black woman in the movies. I don't think it would change anything about the character particularly. And I think that it would add a lot of interesting things. The only thing that I think is tricky is if you want to keep her terrorism backstory. Yeah then it might the optics of it might not, not be might not be the best. the best i do think there like it would it would be a recontextualizing of the character because the experience of a black girl growing up in mississippi is going to be very different, be very different from a white right. girl so there's going to be some changes but i'd be interested to see what those changes were and how how a qualified team of writers would work through them it would have to be very careful about like who you had designing that, Doing that. yeah yeah at the very least, I would love to see, like, a Black writer do that as, like, an Elseworld comic. Yeah, like a, a, you know, something like that. That'd be super interesting. I would really... That would be really cool, Yeah, actually. <laughs> Just to give us that take in some yeah. fashion. But yeah, I'm for it in the movies if they are careful about the implications of the character because she was a terrorist and... There are a lot of, and we've been talking about this a lot, there are a lot of psychosexual implications to this character, yeah. and so you just need to be careful about that stuff, particularly if you are white people writing it, which a lot of the people who are going to be working at Disney and doing these, making these decisions uh, are going to be. So, uh, I mean, I would hope that, because the thing is, like, you know, with Black Panther, they're going to hire a Black person to write that, but in an ensemble team movie it's unfortunately less likely yeah yeah you just don't know that that's gonna happen and i do think that you would need to be very in general with the x-men i think you need to be really careful as chris claremont has said retrospectively if you look at the new hardcover of god loves man kills he has taken the n-word out Hmm. because 40 years later almost he thinks it was probably a mistake these metaphors are dicey and i think that it, it would be very I've said this about like the idea of race bending Magneto and Xavier I just think there are a lot of ways you could step in it if you're like a white person adapting this material and don't think about it enough yeah with Rogue I think it could be really cool if it's thought out well more to the point like I'd like to see certain black characters in the X-Men comic because the thing about also about these MCU movies is like their branding activities, right? Their branding exercises. They want the characters to look mostly like the characters in the comics. So there's that issue. What I would really like to see is I would like to see more Black women characters in the X universe become more prominent. They're going to announce X Corp soon, hopefully. And that presumably is going to star Monet and Warren. And Monet is a brilliant character, Black and Arab. Lots of interesting stuff you can do with that character. Frenzy is in Sword. I would love to see her become more prominent. I'd love to see them do stuff with Tempo, who's a cool character they've never done a ton with. Risque is Afro-Latina, and she's back in Sword. There's a lot of characters you could do stuff with who haven't been explored to the extent that they could be. And I think that what I would do if I were... Because, like, Frenzy's a terrorist. Like, if you want, you know... she's That's... It's already baked in there. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think that you, you'd you get less discourse about was this a sensitive choice? And you'd get the multimedia aspect of the character can also get pushed in the comics. Yeah. 
Like if Monet is in an X-Men movie and she's a huge hit character, then Monet gets to be a star in the comics. That's how it works. So I would like to see them essentially pushing the existing black characters more as opposed to race bending characters who are only going to be black in the movie. Cause I don't think that that leads to more diversity in the comic. Totally agree. Completely. That's my thought process. Yep. Here's one good one to end on. Mish writes, Mish, Mich, Mich Sinath. I'm so sorry. It's like, this could be Irish. It could be a lot of things. Mich Sinath. If it's Irish. Anyway, writes, thank you for writing in. I'm so sorry. Which rogue storyline from the comics do you think would make the best film adaptation or entry for her character to join the MCU? Mm. I think you've got to bring her in with the Brotherhood. I think so, too. Um, and, and, you know, some of it's obviously going to depend on how they decide to bring the X-Men in. Right. But to me, that's a natural point, yeah. is bring the Brotherhood in as even secondary villains in a Captain Marvel movie. Yeah. And everyone can sort of be like, who are these people? We thought they were with you. No, we thought they were with you. Why are they attacking everyone? Because they don't know who mutants are yet. Um, would have to be my read on it. And then w- what I would sort of envision would be Rogue being part of that team and ends up knocking out Carol at the end of the movie. I don't think you do the amnesia plotline again. No, because they already did it with Carol in a different way. But you depower her, and that could be an interesting thing for her to have to work through. And then I think that your your end credit scene is rogue approaching the exactly. x-mansion yeah yeah i think it's that i think you take that that frame from from 171 where colossus opens the door <laughs> and like i think that's your end shot for the movie i actually would steal the wonder man thing from oh yeah the Avengers Star, because who cares about wonder man <laughs> not to be rude like he's a fun character but there, the problem with having her do it to Carol as Captain Marvel is that Captain Marvel has the warbird powers, like the laser blast yeah. and things like that. So it doesn't quite scan. And also, they're just not going to take Carol out of commission. Mm. She's too valuable to the brand at this point. So I think you introduce a character like Wonder Man. And then have, yeah, that makes sense. And then have Rogue take those powers, but make sure that she is Carol's rival. Have Carol and Wonder Man be besties or date it yeah. or whatever yeah. you know like do that and make it so there is a personal vendetta but it's not exactly the same as in the comics as you said it depends on how the mutants are introduced because there's a couple different ways they can do it right one is it's a new thing mutants huh the other is what i would prefer that they do which is mutants have been here all along and you all just forgot because of Xavier or someone. Mm. So like retcon them in. It was suggested on Twitter when I was talking about this once, like someone said how you would start or end the movie that leads into the X-Men basically is like, you would show us again, really famous scenes from the MCU, but use CGI or like digital post-up to put like Storm in the scene mm. or Wolverine in the scene. And they were there, but because of something and you could steal Moira X, you could do lots yeah. of things. Like you could open with essentially the beginning of House of X when Xavier announces Krakoa to the world. And then suddenly everyone could remember the mutants who they had forgotten while Xavier and Moira were setting up Krakoa or something like that. Yeah, You could do that. I think that would be 
smart because it would be awkward at first, but after a couple movies, people would just deal with it. It also, I just don't see how you can build to the X-Men people like if you start at the beginning of the X-Men story now. No, I think that'd be way too hard to weave in. Because they want to get to the 90s type yeah. team. Like, they want to get to the cartoon. You know what I mean? And you need, like, 20 years of X-Men stories to get you there. They don't want to start with Scott and Jean and Bobby and Hank and Warren <laughs> in little uniforms. No. They just don't. No. And no one really wants to watch that. They want to watch Storm and Wolverine and Nightcrawler do stuff. Yeah. I sure You do. know? Right. Same. But at the same time, I don't want, you know, I don't want a retread of the 2000s movies. No. I want it to be totally a new framework. And I want it to have the weight of the history behind it. I don't want the X-Men to be new. Personally, I just keep them separate from the MCU entirely. I don't think they're going to do that. They're not going to do that, but I, yeah, I would be fine with that. they spent a billion dollars buying the rights back, (laughs) so they're going to integrate it. Some people think that they're going to do it via WandaVision. In the MCU, it's like Wanda brings the mutants here instead of Wanda gets rid of the mutants. I would hate that because fuck Wanda, but that's my personal (laughs) I'm actually excited about WandaVision because there's no reason to hate the MCU Wanda. No, she she hadn't done anything wrong. She's she's kind of bland. I I think Elizabeth Olsen's good in the part, but like she's kind of just Jean Grey. Like there isn't really, there is no chaos magic. There hasn't been anyway. Yeah. Like the special things about Wanda. WandaVision seems like it's playing on that. I'm mostly just excited because Monica Rambeau's in it. And she's my favorite Avenger. And Catherine Hahn seems to be playing Agatha Harkness, which is deranged, but that could be really... Like, hot Agatha Harkness is even crazier than hot Aunt May. But it could be fun. Who knows? In any case, yeah, there's, like, speculation that maybe Wanda and, like, the multiverse of madness with Doctor Strange, and, like, they're going to end up merging the world with a world where the mutants have always existed or something like that. Which, you know, whatever. They're going to find some way to do it. But yeah, I would bring in Rogue as a bad guy in one movie and then have her defect. Sort of like they did with Nebula in the Guardians movies. Yeah. But with Rogue, it's easier because she doesn't want to be evil. Yeah. So, like, you can fix it pretty quick. And you could do fun stuff with Mystique and Destiny. And have them actually be lesbians, which would be awesome. Yeah, have them be lesbians, right. And Destiny's never been in a live action thing. No. So that would be fun. She's a cool character. I imagine you would. That, since, like I just said about Aunt May and Agatha Harkness, I imagine it would be the X-Men Evolution version of Destiny, where she's just like a hot lesbian mom from the 90s, as opposed to... I'm okay to, with that. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't have to be ancient. I mean, you know, it's fine, whatever. Just make her immortal like Raven, I don't care. Yeah, that's fine. You know? With the sliding time scale at this point, she was like 130 or something when she died, so it's clearly part of her mutation. <laughs> Well, Cass, do you have anything else you want to say about Rogue before we start to wrap up? Oh, goodness. I I just love her to bits. I just do. I have been so happy revisiting just everything as I was preparing for this episode. And yeah, I hope I hope that the writers and the movies, if she gets moved into there, do, do right by my girl. <laughs> I hope so, too. Well, I want to thank you for being my guest. It's always lovely to chat with you. We have worked together for a very long time. It's been a while now. I know. You are my longest running client at this point. Because you were my third client ever and the two before you I no longer work with. So we've been in the trenches a long time. We sure have. And I have enjoyed every second of it. So why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on social media and plug your incredible fantasy series? 
I will. So yes, my fantasy series is The Oven Cycle. Give Way Tonight came out today. It's available to you in Woo! hardcover, audio, and ebook. Um, the series is, it is, it's um, set in an alternate ancient Rome with elemental magic. So if you like that kind of power, it's, as Connor said, not wildly dissimilar from mutant powers in a lot of ways. I love thinking about thaumaturgy, particularly, and, and how things work. Um, I just, I love writing that series. I love the characters. It's a big cast. So if you like, you know, the big cast of X-Men, that should be good for you, too. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Cass R. Morris. I am very online, so it's a really good way to find me. <laughs> I'm on Twitter all the time. And on Instagram, um, I have two highlight reels in my stories that are just me reacting to things in rogue comic books. So if you're wondering what I thought of a particular given moment <laughs> from her entire history at this point, you can probably find it in those highlight reels. Um, elsewhere online, I have a Patreon where I do microfiction, behind-the-scenes writing stuff, and lots of rhetorical analysis because I am that kind of dork. And if you've discovered that you enjoy listening to me chatter, I am one-third of the podcast team at World Building for Masochists, where we discuss world building and fantasy fiction, and we break apart a lot of different social and political and economic and all kinds of different components of world building and, and how do we think about these things as writers. So. If you've liked the Krakoa discussions on this pod, it's akin to that, and it's a real fun listen, so I would recommend that, too. Please buy Giveaway Tonight. Cass worked really hard on it, and I've read it, and it's good. And uh, <laughs> From Unseen Fire is great, so you can get them both. You can. You know? You've got got two reads to get you through yeah. the dark, they're, cold they're, winter. They're, they're, they're big ones. They are. They're, they're like <laughs> Song of Ice and Fire kind of big, so, well, not quite not that quite. big, but they're pretty big. They're pretty big. They're not one. complete doorstoppers, but you could probably hold a window open, maybe. They're hefty. They're hefty. If you hit somebody with one, it's going to hurt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for having me on this, Connor, so much. I Thank you for coming. I've had a blast. I'm really excited we got to do this. Me too. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find every episode and transcripts of the episodes as I get them up. I hope there are more up now because I did take that week off uh, for the Christmas break. And uh, I hopefully I'm going to do some of that. We're recording before that. So I don't know <laughs> if I'm going to manage it. But hopefully there's more at Cerebrocast.com, which is the official landing page of the podcast. You can write into Cerebro with your comments, questions, and feedback at Cerebrocast at gmail.com. Our next two episodes will be about Megan and Sage. So if you have questions about either of those characters, please feel free to write in. And I look forward to a whole new year of Cerebro in 2021. This is the final Cerebro episode of 2020. Thank you so much for all your support. I had no inkling that this podcast would take off the way that it has. I am so appreciative. I hope to do this for a very long time. So thank you for listening. And uh, until next time, bye and happy new year. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is 